when the levee breaks. Good morning, everyone. October 1. Another day in paradise. Uh, just for the heck of it, um, I think I'm going to start doing this regularly. I kind of like this. I like reading about history. This day in history, I'll just read a couple from here. I'm just going the way back machine. Wow, it's hard to imagine. It says here, 2017, October 1st, 2017, from his hotel room in Las Vegas, 64-year-old gunman Stephen Paddock opened fire on a music festival, killing 58 people and wounding hundreds. Wow, that was five years ago? Hmm. Time flies when you're having fun. 1975, I remember this actually. It was regarded by many as the greatest prize fight of all time, the Thriller in Manila. Muhammad Ali defeated Joe Frazier. That was a good one. 1971. Wow, I'm really dating myself. 51 years. The Walt Disney World Resort, a complex near Orlando, Florida. Opened. And the last one, 1961. Roger Maris hits his, hits his 61st home run of the season, breaking Babe Ruth's record. For those of you that are uh, Yankee fans or just baseball fans, uh, you know, we've got Aaron Judge trying to break Maris's record, and I think it is the record. Though remarkably, uh, I think Maris is only number seven on the list now because of all the steroid those bogus seasons with Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa, et cetera. Uh, he's only seventh, but um, I'm an old-timer. In my view, Maris is the real deal. All the other ones are tainted. You know, if Barry Bonds, what, what's the record? Is that 71, 72? Se- 70, 73, 73, I think. Yeah, go on. Is that, yeah, so after the whole, that whole steroid era, what was the max? I don't know the answer, but I kind of want to go look. What was the max home run average over the next several years? Oh, the maximum. I mean, someone should look it up. I don't think no one's hit over sixty. I don't think since then, and that's why this is so. Maybe one person. I mean, and certainly no one over sixty. That's why this is so exciting now. So, so Rob, Rob, that's your assignment. If you go look that up right now, the last few years, Cantro's question since then, what's been the most most number of home runs hit? But Cantro, seriously, uh, this is actually a lead. Sorry, go ahead, Cantro. Go ahead. Let me go ahead. see if I can. I, don't, I may be ahead of you, or maybe just thinking where are you going with this. Oh, are you going to start putting asterisks on portfolio managers that crushed it during the steroid? <laughs> no, what I am going to, no, what I am going to put it where I'm actually, you're close. It's a variation on a theme where I was going to go with this was, and we're just pivot. We're pivoting here. We're just making this up as we go. And, and let's turn this into a free for all. I don't really care. So just like, you know, major league baseball, I mean, the cheating started with the steroids and they looked the other way and they didn't do anything about it. They were, they were cool with it because they're making, you know, management teams are making more money. I mean, it was collusion between the owners and the players and, you know, everyone's making more money. Well, same way you look at the street, okay? You started all, all this cheating going on with, you know, non-gap accounting, all the nonsense, you know, with uh, stock-based compensation, lockups, you know, companies coming public, they jack them up, the public gets in it, you know, 10, 20 times the price. The whole way the street has basically, the whole thing has been corrupted. And listen, the streets there have been for Boy Scouts. We get that, all right? But the level of theft and malfeasance and bad behavior that's gone on in this last, you know, decade or two has taken it to a whole other level. And so I would say it's really the lack of integrity because, you know, people point out how I get angry and, and heated. 
But I've also been told, but George, you know, we, we get it. You're just pissed off because you're trying to speak from your conscience and it just shouldn't be. Well, send me over to baseball. So that's where I would go with it, Cantro. I, I don't know. Do you want to work that into your uh, your hope methodology, Cantro? Well, no, I think you, know, you make a good point uh, about you know, what caused all the excess. And, you know, we think about, you know, bear, mar- bear markets make you appreciate bull markets. You know, can you imagine if we, you know, we have all these bear market rallies and we'll probably have a few more. Can you imagine if in a bull market every two and a half months we had a 15 to 20 percent correction, how much thinner and smaller Wall Street would be? Yeah. So, 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 so Cantor, let, let, let's go with that. Let's go with that. So these these bear market rallies, I mean, you know, just, we just spoke yesterday. And again, I'm just going to second the motion. Sorry to embarrass him. But yet again, after spending an hour with Cantor on the phone yesterday, I'll say to you that, you know, must follow the best. The best strategist in the street. And Cantrell, what I want to know is, first question, how did you get to be so impressive um, despite your tender age? Cantrell, how old are you, please? I used to be young. Uh, 41. 41? How did you get so smart? It's a, seriously, but seriously, no, all kidding aside, all kidding aside, who were, you, where did you, who were your mentors before and who did you learn from? I know, you, I know you're, the, you're the BASF of uh, portfolio management. You take someone else's system and you make it better. But who, who did you work for? Um, well, you know, I'll try to make it really short. You know, 20 years ago, when I uh, started working at Merrill Lynch, my, my parents gave me a UTMA account that my brother had told them three years prior, two years prior in March of 2000, to put, put it all in uh, Merrill Lynch Global Tech Fund. March of 2000. It wasn't a lot of money. In fact, you know, I think it was 10,000 bucks. So when I was, when I turned 21 or whatever, I, I, I got the UTMA account when I started working. It was like 3,000 bucks, which was a lot of money to me back then. But I was like, what the hell? How'd you lose 70% of the money? Uh, and that lit a fire under my ass to kind of understand markets. And so 20 years later, uh, I'm hopefully uh, getting to that point where, where I can help people avoid such, such drawdowns because we have the exact same setup today. Um, but, you know, it, it's like you said, just from Mosaic, uh, 20 years ago, I used to read blogs uh, and have, you know, we used to have RSS feeds before Twitter. And, you know, I would just, again, take a Mosaic approach and try to piece things together that maybe, I guess, other people didn't see. Uh, I have any re- I'm really handy around the house so I can fix, you know, plumbing, electrical, pool, uh, irrigation, kind of do it all myself. So I think, you know, knowing a lot. Uh, or at least a little about a lot is kind of just who I am as a person. And so I, can, I think it lends itself to, to being in a strategy role. But, um, you know, I, I started off in Maryland doing quant uh, and worked for uh, with Rich Bernstein and a guy named Sasha Pradhuman in the early 2000s. Uh, then I joined um, Ed, uh, Ed Hyman, Nancy Lazar at ISI. Uh, worked with a guy named Francois Trahan for uh, about 12 years. Uh, and um, let's just say, you know, when, when uh, I'm trying to put this, uh, I, I was always working hard to, to impress people that would never give me credit. And so that just makes you work harder and harder and harder and harder. And for long enough, hopefully, you know, that gets you smarter and smarter and smarter. Uh, and so that's, I think, just been, been, been a big part of it. Uh, and just, again, trying to uh, piece together today, you know, everyone says every cycle things are different this time. I, you know, I think a big part of my framework is identifying the major parts of the story that are the same. And in many ways, this bubble and the downturn thereafter, what we see ahead is 
is just like the tulip bubble or just like the South Sea China bubble or the tech bubble or the housing bubble. It's different, different forces, different actors, but it's all the same, same story, just a different, you know, uh, a new, a new, uh, a new, a new evolution of it. Hey, hey Cantor, are there any particular aspects to this, um, which are noteworthy, uh, in terms of things? And, and again, the pattern remains the same. You know, I get that, but are there any things that have happened which are particularly noteworthy, you know, which, which would then with an exclamation point, put emphasis on some of the themes you're looking at, or are there some things which haven't happened yet and, and you're looking for anything? So in other words, if you look at the inside baseball, no pun intended, the granularity of this cycle, does anything come to mind that stands out to you or is it pretty par for the course? I'd say big, big picture. It's par for the course. You know, the difficult thing is of course, trying to bring in the idiosyncratic parts of the cycle, the exogenous parts of the cycle, which each one has its own and trying to figure out how that's going to influence the duration, the magnitude and the timing of your core framework. Um, but, you know, it actually wasn't until this summer, uh, admittedly, I've been doing this almost 20 years, and uh, admittedly, I've never gone back, just because we've, we've never had this dynamic where I've had to you know, go back and look, uh, what's, what happened at every, through my lens, what happened at every bottom of the market? You know, I've only lived through, you know, I started in research in, in, in 03, I've only lived through one real recession bear market. You know, forget about COVID. That, that, that was different. And this is the first time today that we've had that similar setup of, of 07 and 08 in my career. So um, we just haven't had this, this combination of, you know, Fed, uh, Fed tightening, inflation, all the things you see before uh, a recession. And the thing that I keep going back on and where I think a lot of these uh, – people calling bottoms because, you know, when this happens, you're typically up a lot in the next six, 12 months uh, are not acknowledging is that every market bottom is an economic bottom and it's always a housing bottom, every single one. So, you know, and it makes sense. That's not one of these stupid you know, analyses of just, you know, when sentiment's this bad, this, you know, this is what happens to the market. There's no context to that because we don't know why sentiment was bad in each one of these different examples. But at the end of the day, you look at any sentiment table, any sentiment, you know, fund manager survey from Merrill Lynch or Bank of America now, um, every peak in those or every trough in those sentiment measures, they're all right around or right before, like within months, two months, three months, not 12 months, of a bottom in housing. Because you can't get an economic recovery unless you get a recovery and stabilization in housing, and therefore there's no earnings recovery. And if housing doesn't pick up, everything else thereafter gets worse. So, that, you know, again, talking about a bottom today, I, I think just the burden of proof is on people that are calling for that, because unless housing is bottoming around the corner, history doesn't hold up to that. And that's happened across regimes. And that's the important thing today is has, having a framework and analysis that's worked across all different types of regimes. And that's, that's you know, literally 100 percent. So it's not often in, in, in this industry we can say that. You know, there's no guarantees, and of course, anything can happen differently. But that makes sense. It's happened every time, and we're nowhere near that today. So I think, you know, looking for a bottom and thinking that, you know, living through 07, 08, that, you know, the BOE stepping in to plug up a hole or the Bank, you know, bank of Japan stepping in to stop their currency from melting or whatever else we're going to see, these are not going to put, you know, they're not going to – we're just plugging up the holes in the Titanic. We're not going to – 
we're not going to bottom until the economy is close to bottoming. And we're nowhere near there because we're in this interest rate. And, you know, we're, we're in a rates bear market today that, that equities are a bystander of. Just like in 2019, we were in a rates bull market when Powell pivoted, that equities did phenomenal. It had nothing to do with earnings getting better. So I think contextualizing that is super important. And I think everyone, uh, a lot of mistakes I see is people – thinking of this as just a typical run-of-the-mill bear market due to earnings and the economy, and that's 90% ahead of us. So Cantro, yeah, can, can, you've, been, you've been very clear on that. You've been so right. Uh, I want to have a little fun with you, if you don't mind. Um, I want to play a clip. It's a minute and 20 seconds. Tom Thornton uh, posted this. Um, it's, it's from Tom Lee. And um, we're going to have a little bull, bait, bull bear debate in absentia. Um, so I'm going to let Tom Lee explain in his own words what he's thinking. Um, and so here, l- l- just, I hope everyone can hear this. Uh, KFAB, I'm going to ask you to, to raise your hand if you can't hear this. I'm going to turn this on. So I just want to play this. It'll be one minute, Cantro. If you just listen to this, I, I find it comical, but um, let's play this. Hold on. Here we go. It's going to happen in the next few months. might say is why. Well, certainly is one of the last bulls standing the question is tom is that going to change anytime soon uh scott i mean i I think the bull case has been really bloodied uh this year i mean it's been three quarters of displaying market performance um but for reasons that we've been explaining to our clients i think a lot of these headwinds that have been really tough on stocks especially inflationary pressures i think the odds are going to favor a big turn in the fourth quarter and I heard the debate in the prior segment. I think 1982 is really an important analog. You know, in 1982, the market's focus was almost solely inflation. And it was really when the inflation pressures broke in a way that convinced markets is when stocks bottomed. It wasn't a Fed pivot. It was really when the market viewed a pivot as being realistic. And it's a reverse checkmark rally. I mean, the market goes vertical. In fact, uh, when people talk about unemployment, unemployment rate in August was 9%. It still jumped to 11% by December, but the stock market rose 50%. I think ultimately, if inflation breaks in a way that's convincing the next few months, you don't have to wait for the pivot, and that's what we think is going to happen in the next few months. All right, so, so Joy. Yeah, you go for it, Kedro. It's Kedro, it's T-ball time. I just put the ball up there for you. I'm walking away. Go for it, man. So I wrote a report because, you know, I, I don't listen to strategists. I rarely watch CNBC except like when I'm in a hotel getting ready and when I'm traveling. Um, and the extent I hear other people's work, it, it's through you know, clients kind of pushing it in front of me. And so, you know, I heard, the, you know, the, 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 that clip, you know, and he's been saying that for months now that, you know, in 1982, we had, a, you know, four months, we recaptured the whole bear market. So um, I wrote a report addressing that didn't name him but um i said this is not 1982 and this was this was you know again three four months ago um and so i think he's dead wrong on the catalyst if you look at the market bottom in 82 the fed had been easing inflation peaked more than a year ago what happened in 92 that put in the bottom of the market again I'm, i'm a freaking broken record here housing bottomed the ism shot up 20 points, the whole economy bottomed. Uh, unemployment was much higher. Claims were much higher. The whole economy globally rebounded. 
everything was, you know, that, that's it, plain and simple. It had nothing to do with inflation. He's dead wrong. The Fed had been easing, and we finally got to the point where the lagged effect of all that easing had caught up and shifted the economy in a massive way. So, listen, we may have a rally in the fourth quarter. We pro- Again, we're, we're kind of getting close to that point where we're going to get another bear market rally. But this is the thing I've heard a lot is, that, hey, when CPI peaks, the market bottoms, or when the Fed stops, the market bottoms, or when this happens, the market bottoms. You have to look at all of these things together, CPI, uh, PMIs, housing leading indicators. There's actually never been a, peak, a bottom in the market where CPI has peaked, and that's it. Anytime there's been a bottom in the market near a peak in CPI, and again, that's not what happened in 82. CPI peaked over a year before that. It's always come with a major economic recovery in the ISM, the NHB, or housing starts. That's what happened. Anyone go look at the data. Uh, Maybe I'll I'll tweet the chart again just so you can all see it. Uh, I think he's dead wrong on the catalyst, and there's no history that supports the, the point he's making Again, not saying the market can't rally in the next again, over, we're going to have another bear market rally. Um, we could talk about what the catalyst for that could be, but uh, you know we're going to new highs and no way in hell unless we see a bottom in housing and PMIs. and everything I look for that forecast those that have been reliable indicators for 70 years, not five years, not 10 years, uh, is all pointing down for another nine to 12 months. So, so I, I don't know. I don't know what he's looking at. I think his again the net, even the stories tolling just doesn't hold up. At any point does he mention? Look, the economy massively rebounded. No. How the hell do you leave that out? Hey, hey, KFAB, do you want to say something? Well, if you'll indulge me, I wanted to make uh, two quick comments on the baseball topic that I didn't get to say. If that's please, all right, please. Yeah. No, base, base, baseball is the most important. Go for it. Right. Well, I'm, I'm a huge baseball nut, have been uh, since I was a kid. I'm, I'm a little older than Cantrum, sandwiched in between the two of you. I'm 47. So, um, But I, I know a lot of the history and the statistics of the history. So the first thing I wanted to say is that I, a pet peeve of mine is, is this discussion that happens relative to the steroids era and how um, amphetamines were such a huge part of the game all the way back. Uh, and I, I always just try to point out there's a difference between performance enhancement and performance enabling. Um, so just because guys were taking speed to play the day after they were out drinking all night is different than bulking up your your muscle mass in order to hit the ball farther. So that's the first point. Second one is uh, what makes Judge so unique is that he, he's ba- he's basically got the physical profile of the steroids guys because he's a freaking tight end playing baseball. I mean, he's like 6'7", 280. Uh, so he's got the strength of Paul Bunyan without having juiced and cheated, so I, you know, that we know of, obviously, um, and certainly hope that's not the case. And I hate the Yankees, so that's obviously not a reason to, that I'm rooting for the Yankees. Um, and just to put all this in context relative to Babe Ruth, so Babe Ruth's career slugging percentage, and slugging percentage is basically total bases divided by at-bats, uh, was 690, 690. Uh, judge's season this year is 695. Uh, Barry Bonds did not have a season that was uh, at or near uh, anywhere near Babe Ruth's career average before he went on steroids. 
um, even into his peak. And that, that's a good way to look at the steroid era guys. If they have big slugging percentage years that are above their mid 20 slugging percentage in their 30s, that's a huge red flag. So guys like Bagwell and Jim Edmonds, Mike Piazza, they put a bunch of guys in the Hall of Fame, not Edmonds, but they've already put guys in the Hall of Fame that were clearly, I mean, if you know how to do any kind of statistical analysis, that were clearly doing steroids that got in anyway. So just wanted to throw that out there. 100%. 100%. It's really, it's the lack of integrity. And on a serious note, and I thank you for that, Kayfield. On a serious note, and I was being tongue-in-cheek, it, it's just a lack of integrity everywhere. Lack of integrity in institutions, where it's the market. George, you could also say it's it, yeah, it's not necessarily all integrity. It could just be lack of uh, or, or too much luck, right? If stock markets go up all the time, a lot of investors can, you know, Wall Street has been meant to go up. So just thinking, what other industry... When it slows down, does it get juiced up again and again and again? So there's, a, there's, you know, like in baseball, there's analysts that hit 200 and there's analysts that hit, you know, 350. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've just got too many that um, are around because of, you know, that, that this continuous backdrop of, you know, trying to uh, kill the business cycle and, you know, kill bear, kill bear markets. So that's why a year like this year, Again, you, you know, I, again, I've been wrong plenty of times in the past. I will be wrong in the future. But, you know, I, I, again, I, I try to always show the reasons we come up with our, our ideas uh, in multiple different ways. Uh, and this is going to separate, you know, the strong from the weak, as we've seen year to date. Yeah, no, Cantor, fantastic point. Let's, uh, let's go into that point a little bit more, then I'll come back to the point I made. And what it really speaks to is process. And I know you or a big believer and adherent to process-based approach to markets. And yeah, anyone can raise their hand and get lucky on something. I've done it. We've all done it. But, um, you know, I I think I put out one of these tweets this morning. Uh, I'm going to find it here. You know, those who are narrative chasing, you know, value ignoring, CNBC watching, you know, are now getting something to the effect of getting, getting an expensive education. And so it's all about process. And, you know, in that over the cycle, and I, I think it's important, I, I know it's what you promulgate, so I'm not showing for you, but I think I'm trying to channel my inner cantro. It's what a lot of people don't understand about this business. And, 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 and we've been particularly in this prolonged cycle, and I know KFAB's going to weigh back in on this as well, Rob, in this prolonged up cycle, um, at least since the GFC, and you can go back even further um, to all the, you know, excessive excess liquidity that was being created, going back to Greenspan, actually, you know, never let a good, never let it let a good disaster go to waste. I mean, just more, you know, spike the drinks, more, more drinks for everybody. And so, but it's gone, it's gone on steroids in the in the post GFC era. And so, what's really awful about this, and Cancho, I'd like you to respond to this, and and, and Kfab and Rob, uh, in turn, is that the longer this goes on, the more the condition the investor base becomes into believing this is normal. And it's not. Anyone who studied financial history knows it's not. And it's in 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 you know capitalism is being reverting. All right, you can't keep doing this endlessly. What I'm fearful of, and I'll I'll read a I'll read a great thread in a few minutes that somebody put up on Twitter last night. We're getting the mean reversion of of of, of that of that tidal wave of liquidity and and all the attendant consequences of that. So beyond cancer, just the normal business cycle. The backdrop to this um, is, to, with, with apologies to Tom Lee, um, it is, it, it's, it, 
it's so different and so far worse, not just for the reasons that you cited, but it strikes me that given the long up, up cycle that we've had, the exaggerations have been that much more severe. And, you know, I, I remember tweeting last year, like, you look at the Japanese market, you look at 2000, I, I, let's just talk about the 2000 NASDAQ, because I'm more, probably more familiar with the domestic market than the Japanese market. And, I, and I'm going out on a limb here, so I'm winging it, and you'll probably shoot me down, but whatever. You can tell me what's true and what's not true about this. You just look at the extent of the outliers in terms of, and probably through your screens, Cantro, you know, number of stocks selling over 100 times sales, 50 times sales, whatever, bees. I look at the extremes that we achieved in this upcycle, and then just the overall breadth of the overvaluation compared to let's go back to NASDAQ 2000. There it was a more, it was a more narrow pair because you had a huge disparity between growth and value. So, okay. So at least when NASDAQ blew up, you could buy Levitt's furniture, you know, where the dividend yield was higher than the PE. It was like six times earnings and a 6% yield. So it was something to buy. And then guys like Jeremy Grantham, you know, absolutely killed it. This cycle, everything got pushed up. It was the everything bubble. Some things more than others. But I look at what we've done here with the most irresponsible monetary policy in history and now it's inflated the prices of everything. And we're now getting the opposite of that. We're getting the everything bear market. So, Kendra, I, I guess what I would ask you again, when I asked you earlier about juxtaposing this you know, cycle to past cycles, and yes, the overall strategy is the same. The song remains the same. I get it. But to what extent would you agree, disagree with that this one's been worse? And if so, what are the implications of that? First Kentra, then KFAB, then Rob. Kentra? Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, think about every we've had a lot of bubbles and you can trace these all the way back to decades. You know, every bubble has been a function of cleaning up the prior bubble, right? Um, just like 2000 was cleaning up, you know, or, or blowups, right? The Fed, the Fed um, massively inflated the market those last two years when they cut rates uh, in 98. And then, you know, we, we, we cut rates, propelled the housing bubble, cut rates, propelled, you know, propelled the everything bubble, well, propelled the QE 2000, 2000s decade, and then COVID really kind of made it an everything bubble. But yeah, you've had a lot more valuation, more broad dispersion, because what's different about 2000 and today, 2000, the stocks that got the crazy multiples were really the ones that, you know, were supposed to, you know, grow, 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 you know, have these amazing growth returns. The last 15 years, growth, yes, has gotten a bid, but it's also been about, you know, cash flow stability, visibility there's more attributes that investors have been paying up for since 08 because all of this monetary policy has kept so much crap alive so at least in 2000 the cheap companies were, were quality companies a lot of value companies were lower beta higher quality they were just left behind during the tech bubble because they didn't have sexy growth today a lot of what is cheap on a whether it's relative or an absolute basis has been cheap because it's crap and it's only been surviving when the tide goes up. So again, it just makes you want to pay up for anything that provides, you know, decent balance sheet, good cash flow, good visibility. So it's been far broader in terms of the factors or the attributes of companies that investors have paid up for. Uh, and so we don't have those high quality cyclical companies like in 2001 to fall back on when you did have a nice bull market in some of those in small cap value, for example, or in financials in 2001, um, you don't have that today. Um, so I know that's, that's kind of, I think the biggest difference between today and 2000 The question is going forward. 
as investors are now getting burned by growth stocks, especially those with no earnings and, and the view that inflation's not going back to where we were before, you know, we'll see where that evolves. But what are the attributes going forward that investors are, are going to be paying up for in the future? And, and I think we're going to be in a more volatile world going forward because, you know, we don't have consumers that can leverage up, leverage up and create a boom like we had in the 80s and 90s into the 2000s. I think central banks are at the end of their, their run here, at least, you know, creating the ability what they did the last decade. And governments, because they've cleaned up all these messes, are also tapped out. So what's going to create the leverage in the system to create booming earnings that reduce risks and make returns go up massively and limit volatility like we saw in the 90s or in the last decade? I don't know. So I think we're going to see far more volatility in the business cycle. And I think just plain old stability and, you know, stuff like healthcare, where at least you have a demographic uh, tailwind. Uh, it's, it's not a it's not a, it's an unfortunate one. Right. But a lot of people are going to be dying in the next 20, 30 years of the baby boomers. You know what? what I think stability is going to be kind of the next bubble uh, in the next cycle. Well said, Cantro. KFAB or Rob, do you have any thoughts on that question? Yeah, I, I can. I'll address uh, two of them. The, fir the first was the the comments you made, George, about kind of the, I don't know, I'll call it the morality of all of this. Um, so in my mind, there was a four-year period from 96 to 2000 when three big things happened that set us up for this kind of never-ending period of uh, financialization, as I know you've been calling it, George. The first was the Boskin Commission in 96, where they basically institutionalized, as I call it, phony baloney inflation or fake inflation. So we've been pricing risk off of fake inflation for, you know, 26 years. And, and it was done intentionally. It's all public. Um, you know, it was done to cut long term entitlement liabilities. So then in 98, uh, the New York Fed became all powerful uh, when we bailed out long term capital management. And that was the first kind of moral hazard thing. Um, where, you know, if, if, if you're a reckless asshole, really pay any, any real price as far as pain goes. Um, and then in 2000, 99, 2000, when they got rid of Glass-Steagall, uh, and, and we might have the next Treasury Secretary was one of the people was at the forefront of that. Um, and that, again, created all this mess within the context of the investment banks then merging with the commercial banks. And that's how we got the fun of 2008. And probably looks like more fun with Credit Suisse and some of these other guys. So that, that's the moral part of it for me. And, and now you've got all these gambling leveraged assholes that put a gun to the government's head every time that they blow up and say, oh, God, the, the, you know, uh, mom and pop's pension is going to go to zero or, you know, the whole global economy is going to melt down if you don't bail us out again. And it's this never ending feedback loop of, of leveraged assholes going to beg for for you know, um, mercy, so to speak, and none of them ever really having to pay a price. So that that's my moralizing part. The, the, the second part on the economy, and I agree with Cantra on this, I've been using kind of a, a, a an analogy, if you'll indulge me. Uh, I don't think I've shared it with, with your space yet, um, but I think it's a good one, George, which is, you know, it's like uh, forest management, right? If, if there's a long period of time where a lot of dry tinder grows on the floor of the forest, and you don't have any kind of a fire, the risk of, the, of a forest fire grows and it's an exponential growth. It's, it's an exponential function. And we haven't had a forest fire, so to speak, in the economy since 2009. Um, 2020 was not, there was no Schumpeter aspect to the 2020 uh, recession. So we have basically 13 years of no fires. 
And what's uh, very dangerous about this cycle is that normally just the normal rhythm of the business cycle, global business cycle, when there are forest fires in North America, like, you know, you, the U.S. has a forest fire, i.e. recession like we did in 2008 and 2009, there's breaks in the forest, right? So China didn't go into recession in 2009. They actually just slowed down from, let's say, 11% to 8% GDP growth. India was similar, just slowed down. So that kind of created a natural barrier as a shock absorber for the fire or the recession. Well, what the pandemic did and all the lockdowns is everyone kind of rebooted their business cycle at the same time within a very small amount of months and a limited amount of months. And that removed all of the normal breaks in the forest to prevent a spreading of the fire. So we've basically got 13 years of no burns and all of the, 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 you know, the breaks in the forest have been ripped down because of everyone rebooting at the same time in their business cycles. And that's why a synchronized global recession, which is we're in the midst of now, I think anyway, it's clear uh, with the U.S. kind of being dragged down, uh, maybe China leading us into it. Um, that's why this is so dangerous is because of the amount of dry tinder, all the leverage, no real cleansing or shumpeter forces that took haven't taken place in 13 years. And the whole world's doing this at the same time. Really well said, KFAB. That's, that's tight and concise and, and really, I think, fits fits what we're looking at beautifully. I don't know, Rob, did you want to say something? Yeah, thanks. You know, this, this uh, George's room is moving so fast. It's like that scene from uh, the movie Airplane, you know, now arriving gate 41, 42, 43. Uh, so I'm going to tr just try to bullet point a few things here to maybe foster uh, a broader discussion uh, on these topics. So first of all, uh, as far as uh, your analogy that you were looking for with the football, um, somebody told me a long time ago, you can't hit a nine-run home run. Okay? Never happened, never will. You can't get it all back at once. And similarly, you can't take everything the Fed has done since, oh, let's say 2016 – and just reverse it in, in a matter of a uh, short period of time, unless that short period of time includes a crash, which nobody can really anticipate perfectly. That's one. Uh, secondly, uh, as far as Tom Lee, uh, I actually go back, I mean, I'm talking a long time, see him on television all the time, uh, but I go back to Tom Lee when I worked with him at Morgan Stanley in like 1993, 94. He was the second-in-command um, uh, heir apparent to Byron Wien, who is a Wall Street legend and who would tell it like it is and take both sides. So I guess I don't really know where Tom went with the Uber Bowl thing, but it's there. Uh, also, 1982, um, I mean, let's go back and ask the investment population of 1982. It's completely different from the investment population of 2022 for reasons I'm sure we've discussed here. We certainly can. There was no retail investor presence. I mean, you know, completely different. So it's really hard to go back to a period like that. I think 2000, fair comparison, and uh, 2007, 8, 9, fair comparison. And uh, most of those people were uh, investors then, and they are today. Um, next point, uh, if you want to maybe uh, try to put into non-financial terms what the last several years of uh, Fed pumping, creating the everything bubble is like, go back and watch uh, an award-winning documentary called Supersize Me. Um, it's a guy that 
for 30 days, he eats McDonald's three times a day. And he measures constantly what happens to his body. And at the end of the 30 days, you can only imagine, and I like junk food like anybody else, but, but 30 days, three times a day, and his body in 30 days went from pretty healthy to, you know, you know, get, get this, get this man a room in the hospital practically. And, and so again, he could not just say, okay, I'm done eating fast food problem solved. It was going to take him, and I think he may have documented this, you know, several months just to get himself, maybe a couple of years to recover from what happened in the 30 days where he was throwing junk at himself and giving himself no mercy. And to me, that's a beautiful analogy for what the retail investor and maybe a lot of institutional investors and permables don't understand. Very last point, um, when you, uh, because the title is room, right? It's oversold. You know, my dad taught me to chart stocks when I was seen. He never did it professionally. But one of the things he taught me was uh, the biggest mistake you make as a technician is when you follow an oscillator, you see that it's overbought or oversold, and you don't appreciate the fact that oscillating indicators, which is a technician's way of saying overbought, oversold, they can get pinned. That's the term that he used. They can get pinned at the top for long, long periods of time. And that is what extends bull markets. It's also what makes the market more dangerous than most people, I think, except for this room, are giving it for. And that's my take. Wow, Rob. Listening to Cantro, KFAD yourself, I mean, it's just, I thank all of each and every one of you. It's just fantastic. Um, really good insights. I want to read here a tweet. It's a thread. Um, if someone wants to throw up in the nest, uh, they can, but I'll, I'll get it up there later. I'm having problems with my with the app today. For some reason, my uh, tweets aren't going up into the nest. <clears throat> There's a fellow, um, one bubble to rule them all. One bubble to rule them all. He just tweeted out a thread last night. I'll just take a minute or two to read this, and I'll read it slowly, but I think this is really important. Important to keep an eye on the main story. You can think of every single global risk asset as being priced off the U.S. long bond. Due to QE, the long bond was wrongly priced. Now it is normalizing. Every single global risk asset, equities, real estate, whatever, should have a risk premium on top of the U.S. long bond. Due to QE and Keynes' animal spirits, this risk premium became effectively zero, or close to zero, over the last few years. Due to the suspension of QE, every single global risk asset is now being repriced against a normalizing U.S. bond yield and normalizing risk premium. This, in effect, means that the discount rate for each and every asset... Um, Hold on a second here. Uh, just a minute. I'm terribly sorry. Yeah, th this in effect means that the discount rate for each and every asset, global risk asset, is being is rising by between two and ten percent. The effect of raising the discount rate for a risk asset from low single digits to mid to high single digits will cut the value of every single global risk asset by twenty to fifty percent or more. Should inflation remain sticky this downward repricing will not be reversed, unlike the dot-com bust and the GFC. This is a, that's something which, the, again, the, the new investor crowd doesn't appreciate. We are at the start. We are at the start of a likely permanent, and Shrub, you got to get up here because I'm talking dirty to you now, man. I'm talking bare to you. 
we we are at the start of a likely down of a, of a likely permanent once in a generation downward pricing of every single global risk asset after a likely permanent once in a generation upward repricing of the discount rate for all risk assets and here comes the closing this is pay attention despite the year to date decline in global risk asset prices investors have still not grasped that one the repricing still has a long way to go and two there will be no rebound at the other end. Again, the repricing still has a long way to go, and there will be no rebound at the other end. And Shrub, I'm going to turn to you in five seconds. You know, everyone is piling on bearish or whatever. It's like, oh, you know, now it's take oh, now everyone's like, oh, you're too bearish. You know, the same people who are giving me crap at the beginning of the year and the markets, everything's on a face plant, and Kathy's down sixty. Excuse me if I, you know, if I remind them of that call, they'll, they'll say I'm trolling. Well, the same people who were who were who wouldn't give me the time of day at the turn of the year are saying I'm too bearish. They just don't get the plot. They don't see the big picture. They don't see Cantro's point about we're just starting the down cycle for earnings. I just want to put a put a bullet through my head. So in any event, I'm going to turn it over now to Shrub. And that, that, that that's going to let the master, great friend of this room, everyone's got to follow Shrub. He's been so right on on, on on everything. We see eye to eye. And I hope, Shrub, if you and I start laughing together this time, as you reminded me the other day, we were laughing about the bonds a few months ago at 3%. So, Shrub, take it away. Hey, buddy. Sorry, last time I was a bit intoxicated and I had a great time being on your spaces. Yeah, but you know what? You were even better intoxicated. <laughs> I like you better. Well, right now, uh, while you guys are talking about baseball, for me, it's porcini season. So it's these uh, wild mushrooms in Italy. So I have a ton of porcinis around me, and I'm just uh, cooking while we speak. So I'm enjoying my equivalent of baseball season. But, but anyway, so on this, uh, on, when, when I had the, uh, the spaces under uh, the influence of alcohol, I made a comment that I want to clarify based on this thread that, uh, that you described. So I said that I'm buying two-year treasuries. Okay, And I said, and I tweeted out something that most people didn't understand, so I might as well explain it now. And I said, I'm buying two-year treasuries because they're at 4.3%, and I'm sitting on a lot of cash, 70% right now to be exact. Um, and if the two-year is at 4.3%, it means, you know, if the two-year is at 2% and the 10-year is at 10%, it means that U.S., investment grade should be at 6%, and it means that high yield should be at 8%, and it means that equity free cash flow yield should be at 10%. So I gave you four asset classes. Oh, and by the way, crypto should be at zero, right, if you put all those things together. So I just gave you a very simple capital structured lesson there. You have a capital structure. You start from the safest asset, you go up to the senior secured, you go up to the you know, senior unsecured, you go to the junky uh, high yield, and then you go to the equity. So when you value things, which people don't really do anymore because it's all about the narrative, you just put a bloody premium, you know, risk premium on every tranche. So if I'm, if I'm, buying, if I'm buying the US two-year at 4% and you're not buying it, it means that you, and you're buying equities, it means that you think 
that your equities, your blue chips, I'm not talking about mid-cap, your blue chips should yield you 10%. So that's not an S&P of 4,000. That's an S&P below 3,000 at best. So that's point number one. Point number two is, and I think, you know, this was very well highlighted by Cantrell many times is, um, okay, so you want to hide in, uh, in blue chips. Great. So you bought some Nike. Okay, great. Well, <laughs> their inventory just bloated and they're going to be dumping shoes for the next 12 months. So, you know, you, you just uh, lost 50% uh, on your blue chip. So, you know, when reality hits in the real world, doesn't matter if you own a blue chip or not, you know, you're still going to lose money. <laughs> it's that simple. So it goes back to my point. If, if you see your blue chips getting killed, the first place to go, it means that the economy is slowing down. So you, the first place you should be looking at is the short-term, high, high, sorry, short-term U.S. treasuries. And that should be your benchmark for comparing everything else. Um, and I think a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money in the next few months just hiding in blue chips like Nike. You know, great companies and all that, but, you know, wrong price. Wrong price and, not, and wrong EPS because I don't know about you, but I've never made money buying a stock with declining uh, estimates. And this is what's happening. You know, we're buying, you're buying a great company, but in, in a declining estimate uh, environment, and that, that doesn't really work, uh, unfortunately. So I'm sorry. <laughs> so, you know, even, even if, you know, and, and, and given the margin pressures, by the way, I think this is the other thing that people are really underestimating because, you know, labor is tight. We see it in Europe, by the way. I mean, Europe, for all its bearishness, labor is really tight here as well. Um, so that obviously impacts the margins. So you could have a scenario where, you know, growth isn't that bad, but your margins are getting destroyed. So, you know, again, that, that points to that. This is what, you know, stagflation, inflation, uh, inflation, inflation pressures do. And that's why the bond market isn't actually, you know, that's why the 10 year is not a 2%. It's at 4% because actually those inflationary pressures are still in the system. Um, and which is exactly why I, I only look at the short end uh, uh, of the treasury market to give me hints about where the world is going. Shrub, let me ask a question. I, but, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of my highest conviction levels that we are in an earnings bear market. And Cantor will talk in a minute and he'll talk about that. But um, for all the reasons that you very eloquently laid out. Shrub, let me ask you a slightly different question. Uh, I'm talking with a couple of European friends. I think in France, actually, they're like, hey, you know, in the Netherlands, hey, gee, you know, things are actually okay here. The housing market's still, my Dutch friends, the housing market's still on fire, you know, blah, blah, blah. You go out, the bars are still full, blah, blah, blah. And so we're sitting here over in the U.S., and, you know, we're very insular people. And you, know, you read enough Zero Hedge articles and what's going on to have a cold winter in Europe and the Russians and all that other nonsense. You'd think Europe was already in a depression, but can you just speak sort of from everyday life when you go around? Like, would you would you even know that there's this upset going uh, going uh, going on in financial markets right now, or are things pretty still okay in Europe as far as the man in the street is concerned? Shrub, can you unmute yourself, please? Uh, 
Oh, yeah, sorry. So yep. the, the saving grace um, in Europe is that the labor market is very good, which is the saving grace in the U.S. as well, by the way. Um, so when you have a tight labor market, and actually people don't really want to work here because they got their uh, nice benefits, um, and they got the benefits from, for the energy packages. So, for example, in the U.K., the energy bills should have gone from 1,200 to 5,000, but instead they capped it below 2,000. So that would have killed the UK consumer, but it still gave, instead it gave him some breathing space. Um, and again, you have to differentiate the different markets. So for example, in France, where you know, I, I'm close to France right now, you know, the U, their mortgage is a 30-year fixed and their energy prices were subsidized. So you know, the person on the street doesn't feel it that much uh, bizarrely, the only time I had, I had more uh, people complaining in the summer when the oil price went above, uh, you know, when, the, the, when the oil was at 120. That's the time. Um, and the other thing I've noticed, because, uh, you know, now it's the Monaco Yacht Show, and it's, I, I think I told you during my intoxicated phase that it's, it's actually the busiest uh, yacht show they've had for ages. It's full of Americans, Australians, and Greeks. They're just coming to spend their spoils of uh, the commodity market. So it's a very, very busy time. Um, spoke to a, to a broker a bit earlier, and he said, actually, we're really surprised. These, uh, you know, the Americans are coming in and filling the void from the Russians, but obviously not as uh, flashy as, as the Russians. So there is American money coming now here uh, to Europe to take advantage of the low, you know, uh, cheap currency as well. Um, and also the other surprising thing I've had talking with banks uh, was that demand for real estate is actually quite strong because people are panicked about uh, their currency depreciating, which, you know, I don't think you have that kind of feeling in the U.S., but imagine, you know, my generation. So, you know, I, I'm uh, 42 and I grew through uh, the Greek drachma, the Cypriot lira, the Italian lira. So I actually witnessed uh, the Greek drachma depreciating three times or the Cypriot lira depreciating two times. So, you know, I lived through that and I'm only 42. So the guys in their 50s, they know, they have, they, they know about this, right? So their natural defense is that they're going out to buy real estate because that's the easiest thing they can do. And also they're trying to lock in some rates. So bizarrely, the real estate market is actually quite strong uh, in some areas with cash buyers. Now, okay, caveat to that, okay? Caveat to that, I remember very well 08, because in 08, you know, if you think you're bearish, we were 100 times more bearish <laughs> than you are now. Um, and in 08, we were watching the system collapse, and it was, um, you know, you would go to the clubs and everyone would be partying, and then I remember well, uh, U.S. funds were buying in Europe as a safe haven against subprime. And I remember exactly the same thing, you know, the Europeans saying, oh, this subprime is contained in Europe. So there's always, you know, when the Titanic is, singing, is uh, sinking, you know, the band keeps playing and some people don't realize. So I don't want to be in the, you know, we're out, uh, uh, we're safe camp. I want to be in the People don't realize that they act according to their instincts, camp. Um, and, you know, in 08, by the way, I was just going through what Trichet did. 
So I remember it always really well. I mean, I, uh, so in 08, Trichet, so that, who was head of the ACB at the time, um, he actually, in June 08, he came out and he was talking about inflationary pressures. And it was the famous Trichet rate hike. So we're kind of in, like, you, you do get some glimpses, some flashbacks of 08 when you see this behavior, I think. Because you see the train wreck, you see the slowdown coming because, you know, we monitor it closely, right? We look at the asset prices in the stock market, which is the first thing that reacts fast. And, um, and, it's, it, and it's like the central bankers in a different way, in a different planet. So Trichet, it was, when he was doing it on eight, he was saying about, you know, fighting persistent inflation, blah, blah, blah. And then three months later, the world collapsed. <laughs> so, yeah, so so so, Shrub, just stay on that point, and 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 then I'll answer the way in. Um, so your last point about Trichet and needing to rates 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 more. I know there's some economic data. Out. I mean, we you were talking you were talking a second ago about you know bizarrely, the real estate market stays strong in France, and the average guy in the street isn't seeing seeing it so much, seeing it first in the financial markets. And you and, and you rightly pointed out that you know some of the same things happen here in the states, and so you see some economic data. Uh, it was, I think it was consumer survey or whatever it was. That's some inflation data as well. It, it, it's still hanging in there, and so doesn't that mean to you? And this is maybe you want to elaborate or your comment about Trichet. The extent the economy's hanging in there, it's actually um, not a good thing. It's a bad thing. I That's think. a bearish thing. That's I, a bearish I, thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> of bearish. course it is. <laughs> exactly. I, I think, of I think, course it is. I think Cantro and Cantro's gonna. I want. I'm gonna tee it up for Cantro. It's T-ball time, Cantro. I think I think he said something the other day about the problem is it's not that something's broken, it's something hasn't broken. So Cancho, take it away. Uh, yeah, we were hearing the same thing in the US. Didn't Yellen just said everything's the financial markets are performing, they're functioning well. And Powell said, you know, the economy's fine. And it's again, it's it's the lag it's it's the mandate and how they set policy, which is ass backwards. Um, but I I w I didn't want to I wanted to comment on something Shrub uh, Shrub just said about blue chips. Because I've heard it a few times from clients saying, well, you know, to get to get to your forecast, uh, and this was probably three months ago, you know, we think market will end this year at 3,400, thereabout. Um, you know, you, you have to get the fang. These big apples got to fall so much, you know. How, how can apple fall so much? And, you know, fang was popularized in 2014, as, as I remember it. And, you know, they did shelter the market from what happened in 2015 when, you know, the industrial economy collapsed with oil. Uh, and they did do pretty damn well, large cap growth stocks in 2018. The last time we had a tightening cycle, uh, though it was obviously far more mild than what we're seeing today. So this idea that these stocks can't go down, well, they've never faced a tightening cycle, a global tightening cycle. They've never faced this environment. We have, again, this goes back to the point earlier. We haven't seen a broad tightening cycle, banks tighten lending standards, a shock of inflation, uh, all the things you see before every single recession, a drop in housing. Blue chip stocks haven't had to face that, haven't faced that. Fang hasn't been around long enough to have faced that in 07 and 08. So it's just like comical that like all people can remember is, uh, you know, the last 10 years and not appreciate that like, we have things, again, this is a fact, not an opinion. We have a situation today that we haven't faced in at least, you know, since 07 and 08. 
And then the idea, well, this is, you know, look at U.S. banks are fine. U.S. consumers are fine. You know, we blew up the rest of the world, the U.S. We, in 08, maybe this is the other way around. But, you know, if you're going to tell me there's no excesses built up in the last 15 years that are going to blow up, um, you know, I'll sell you a bridge. And we're, we're only going to find them out as growth slows more and more. And, you know, we'll see all the, all the uh, actors that are wearing no pants. So, so Cantro, um, I want the last point you made about, you know, we'll find the skinny dipping as uh, the tide goes out and a warm up, please call your office. Shrub, I'd like you to address something because you're, you're, you're a sicko. And then after Shrub, we're going to go to KFAB because I, I can think of no two better guys that could answer this question. So is, uh, I think it was a French economist who once said, you know, uh, Bastiat is what you see and what you don't see. And it's the, what you, it's, what, it's, the, it's the what you don't see, which is, uh, you know, that's the surprise of the margin, which gives us a uh, good way to make money. So we were all surprised, I believe, uh, if you go back in the Wayback Machine a week ago, the idea of UK punt pensions becoming a front page story. Yep. Like, like, where the hell did that come from, right? Okay. So well, my, exactly. So, so, yeah. so, Shrub, my question to you is, when prices move quickly, such as they have, mm-hmm. you know, it could be uh, energy prices going to the moon and, you know, utilities unhedged, you know, for their energy exposure or they're hedged, but they get big margin calls because, you know, there's a market market loss or you get interest rates moving very sharply and you got all these gurus with their crazy reverse back slip slips, swaptions, payers, floaters, all this nonsense stuff happens. And so my question to you, Shrub, two parts. The first part's easy. The second part's hard. And the second part really doesn't matter. But A, don't you think given the moves we've already seen, forget about what we might see, we've already seen. That's only a question of time before some whales, uh, some big fish float to the surface. It's, you know, the Gavcal dynamite fishing example. That some fi- big fish are going to float to the surface. There are some people who are already bankrupt or in big trouble. We just don't know it yet. They, they, don't, they may not even know it. It might be For sure. Okay, and so my question to you is, yeah. what's the likelihood of that happening? And, and if you think about it, who do you think some of the primary suspects are? So let me, let me tell you one thing I learned in 08 when I was, uh, I was a banks analyst. It was part of my many hats, and uh, it was fun doing it at the time. And I was very, very short Barclays. And during the times uh, I was doing the, the analysis, I was looking at the balance sheet, they actually had a ton of 50-year derivatives that they were selling to these funds. So they were selling, but at the time, they were underwater because you know they were, these, these pension funds were buying protection against high rates uh, sorry, against they were hedging rates when rates were like four percent, um, and uh, Barclays was lending them, was giving them fifty-year derivatives. But at the time, because rates collapsed, uh, those options were actually making a lot of money for the pension funds, but actually were like really loss-making for Barclays because actually the Barclays was giving them at like a very tiny spread. They were so, and, and basically. To cut the long story short, the derivative sales guy was the only guy making money because he was getting a bonus out of it. And Barclays was at a deep loss because the cost of capital implied for that transaction was making like a few bips. But they kept that thing on their book for 50 years. And when we were looking at the bad bank, good bank scenario, they're like, who the fuck wrote a 50-year derivative on rates? You know, and who cares? The guy is like probably retired somewhere now, so he doesn't care. Point is, the same thing happened at Credit Suisse. 
extensively over the last few years. If you see a Credit Suisse, they have a securitized bond issuance backed by yachts of their customers, including a few oligarchs. So I don't know where that bond is trading or if it, if it is trading. But, you know, the fact that someone actually thought the stupidest bloody thing of doing a securitized bond on yachts, yachts, that is Trip, like... Shrub, stop, 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 stop. You weren't trash talking and joking. You're serious? Securitized? No, 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 I'm serious. I'm serious. Yeah. I mean, it shouldn't even surprise you because, uh, you know, I think I told you the story with, uh, you know, one prominent private bank is offering crypto products uh, in Europe. So, well, was offering, sorry, was offering. (laughs) So, So Credit Suisse is doing structured solutions. So they were doing like securitized yacht products and also they were doing um, a lot of securitized private jet uh, deals and when Russia blew up uh, from the war they were in their surprise they managed to unwind that one because there was a big shortage of private jets at the time so they got lucky on that one but you know let's go back to the excess of the system if someone is writing a securitized yacht thing because he uses the last uh, 10 year asset prices and suddenly no one buys a yacht because all the Russians are gone. Well, you know, what's the recovery value in a Russian oligarch's yacht? <laughs> it's not that much, is it? <laughs> so there's a lot of excesses. And the one thing I want to clarify, putting my bank's analyst hat on, in 08, it was very bad because banks were levered 100 to 1. And they were doing stupid shit like... Uh, you know, putting subprime on their own books and doing this 50 euro, 50 year derivatives on that thing. So fast forward today, they're not 100 times levered. They're only 20 times levered or 10 times levered. The European banks are more like 20 times levered. Okay, 20 times levered is better than 100. But if you start, if you had like five years of easy money and you've done stupid crap like securitized uh, yacht deals at best and those probably are their better ones, uh, then someone's, someone's going to have a rude awakening. And the guys at, uh, you know, let, let me just uh, stick to Credit Suisse because there were rumors that they're in trouble, which I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Frankly, we're going to find out anyway at some point. But, you know, Credit Suisse were the guys, the guys that financed Archegos or however you call him, Bill Wang, Kathy's protege or, you know, Kathy's mentor, whatever he was. So when you have an excess... I mean, that's a pure excess by itself, right? You have a family office as if it's a random guy who blew up before and you lever him like you lever him up like multiple times. So, you know, that was a skeleton that showed up. So I think my, this, my conclusion is banks uh, are, you know, they carry trillion dollar balance sheets. And after I've spent, uh, you know, when I spend months going through them, I would find stuff that I couldn't believe existed. And, you know, right now I haven't done the exercise because I frankly can't be bothered. But I'm pretty sure when you have a trillion dollar balance sheet and greedy sales guys and women, you, w- you will find a lot of skeletons that are going to float to the top and people are going to be like, ha, where the fuck did this come from? Like this Bill Wang thing. You know, who the hell knew who Bill Wang was until like he blew up? Who the hell knew about the British pension funds until, you know, this LDI thing until they blow up? We're going to find so many interesting things <laughs> given the speed of these rate increases. It's just a question, uh, you know, if they manage to keep them under the carpet for that much longer. Thanks for that, Shrub. Say uh, 
uh, please stay. I love hearing you talk, man. KFAB, do you want to weigh in? Yeah. Um, so I, I actually wrote something about this a little while ago. Um, you know, it's like a Schrodinger's cat situation, which is, I, I think it was Einstein and Schrodinger uh, debated about, uh, you know, the, the, the mental exercise was basically if the cat is dead in the box, is it, is it really dead until you open the box and see that it's dead? Right. Uh, and there's an application of that with physics. But anyway, um, you know, so there's probably all these dead bodies that are going to float to the surface uh, and progressively. So just like there was in 08, just like there was in 2000 and 2003, every major cycle has these. And the question is, when do you actually open the box to see it? And, and that that information is not dispersed perfectly. There'll be people that will find out before others and get positioned ahead of time. But but they are there. They're going to be there. They're always there. So that's the first comment. The second one was about, I think, about employment. There's a very interesting situation setting up here because of recency bias, meaning that whether it's in Europe and the U.S., you have all these employers that have been starving for labor. And that what that's probably going to do, at least in my mind, this is my thesis, is it's going to make them more reticent than normal to cut as the cycle turns over, as the earnings cycle turns, and they're gonna retain labor for longer than they maybe should uh, because of that recency bias, which actually is gonna create a whole different feedback loop in the cycle dynamics relative to the dual mandate, the Phillips curve, court curve, all this alchemy that the, 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 the Fed's using to try and project these things, um, where you could end up getting like a cascade later of, of people being, um, you know, cut because they've been because of this dynamic heading into it and, and the associated recency bias. Yeah, KFAB, that's been my that's been my uh, uh, thesis all the way along. And um, I think we're both fans of Vincent uh, Delaware. I don't know if I pronounce his name right. And he's written on this and a couple other smart cookies have as well. I think you're 100 percent right. And therefore, going back to the profits picture, um, the extent that companies are hesitant to shed labor and Jim Bianco's in the audience. He can come up here because he's been out in front on this whole thing. Um, the lever they typically would use to preserve margins, they're going to be more hesitant to, um, to use that lever. So couldn't agree with you more. Um, let's keep moving here. Uh, I want to go to um, McFly has been waiting for a while and then we're going to do Neely. McFly, please unmute yourself. Hi, George. And uh, thanks very much for these spaces. I'm a property developer in London, and I just wanted to, to, to weigh in with regards to real estate. What I'm seeing here is we're only beginning to see the changes take effect. So, for example, buy-to-let, which is, if you like, investment property here, has just started to become more expensive. And now we're starting to see listings dry up and transactions come down. But this is very, very, very early. I'm also an ES trader, so I trade the SPX. And um, I noticed last week there was a lot of uh, put writing. And I think it explains why the VIX didn't move down the way it should do once you know you start seeing breaking of support. It's a very gradual decline. And I think there's a lot more to come. Everybody's expecting the bounce. But I think we're just very, very early in remembering 2008. So that was my general comment. I didn't have any questions. So um, really good insights, McFly. I wanted to ask you, let's let's get into uh, the sentiment here. Uh, sentiment's the wrong term, but market structure. Um, you know, it's become, you want to talk about consensus thinking? Consensus thinking right now, to my way of, of looking at things, is it, oh, the market's oversold. 
it's gone down, you know, umpteen out of list, umpteen weeks, therefore it has to bounce. Exactly, I take, yeah. I take the other side of that. If I see, I mean, last weekend, the chart that I'm sure you saw, the chart that made the rounds, everyone, that if I saw it once, I saw it a hundred times. That chart of the volume of put options traded, like all-time high in one day, and everyone says, ah, see, see, everyone's bearish. Exactly. Couldn't have been, couldn't have, okay. Now, I'm going to offer up something, and, and, and I want your reaction to this. Um, so there was a, uh, a guy I worked with early on in my career at Fidelity, Leo Dworsky. He, he was truly a, a contrarian investor, and, and, and he's not sorely missed. He passed away recently. And I learned a lot from him about contrarian, the theory of being contrarian. And, and you know, being contrarian, it's, that's a tough gig. And just being different for the sake of being different, there's no way to go through life. But, you know, I would actually argue – let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Let's say the oil price is going up. It starts going up, and people get, and all the tourists get dragged in, the momentum uh, crowd, and, and, and whatnot. So the consensus becomes bullish, and it keeps sort of you know going up. And people don't really know, but they don't know the real, they don't know the true reason why they're bullish. They're just going along with the narrative in the public square, and they're being seduced by price. Correct. But let's. But they don't really know why they're bullish. And I remember one of the best oil analysts I ever met, actually a great fund manager, Ken Hebner. He would get rather animated and excited. He'd say, he'd say, no, no, no. And going back to Leo Dworsky. The real contrarian opinion in that situation is not being bearish of the oil price. It's being uber bullish of the oil price. If you really knew what was going on, in other words, the people that are that are that, that own it, they don't really know why they own it. They don't, or they don't know the real reasons why they should be owning it. So this idea that, oh, the market's down, and look at the CNN sentiment indicator, and blah, 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 blah. Therefore, I'm going to be a wise guy, because that's obvious, and I'm going to be bullish. Yeah, I mean, you, this is where I see it. I think we're in December or November, when, if you recall, in 2007, when I think it was Credit Suisse came out with the report that um, there was a problem in the MBS, and we had that first drop in the S&P, about 4.5%. I remember I was a young pup back then in finance, um, managing portfolios. And I thought to myself, that was strange. That's, I think, roughly where we are. All we've given up, really, is the 2021 ridiculous rally, stimulus, stimulus money rally. Um, and we're just beginning to see, for example, here in the UK, today was the first day that we're that the energy companies are charging the new rates for energy. But everybody's had that in their mind for the last six months, right? But it's only now that people's money is going to start to get squashed. And we're only starting to see the, re the real estate market still very hot. And um, I don't buy that we've seen anything yet. So I, I, I watch every tick of the, S of the ES. I trade ES every day. I don't trade anything else. I've seen the way it comes down. It isn't. It isn't trying to find a bottom. It, it, it is. It's not ready to turn yet, in my humble opinion. And I think it explains the reason the VIX is very subdued. Um, and I think. I think there's a. I think there's a pocket under there. I think we'll probably McFly, see it next week. McFly, do you have the sense of? Because this is something I've been uh, focused on a lot uh, relative to the potential for a nonlinear event. Um, what do you have a feel for the scale of the put selling? Meaning that 
my, my sense is that it's been epic just by watching how markets are trading and you know looking at skew and looking at uh the term structure and and just the the amount of open interest that just rolls through all these different strikes or uh, expiries now um so do you have a sense on that yeah because look i mean look, option sellers are very sort of sigma related and we've seen an incredible fall if you think how we've come down to reach this level you know so you're looking at quite a big move that is the perfect place to start selling vol right so everybody's jumped in to do it and i think i think those guys are loaded and, and, and ready to capitulate because if you saw that close on friday that was not a good close that was well, and well, and they, they, jammed, they jammed implied volatility all the way down to like 2829 for this coming Friday. I mean, that is not and a that, tell, that tells you the quantity that was sold, right? That gives you a feel for it. So I personally think that I think Julian Brigden's spot on. I do think we're going to get a cascade to the downside. Um, and I just don't think it's a good idea to look at historical precedents at this stage, just because of the way we entered. Yeah, um, McFly, 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 I couldn't agree with you more. I have one thing to say, and then I want to go to Jim Bianco, because I'm sure he's got some comments on this. And I'm just going to read a tweet from uh, Tavi Costa um, from this morning. I think it's spot on. It resonates with me. I suspect it resonates with yourself, McFly, and KFAB. And McFly, I want your reaction to this, and then I want to go to Jim Bianco. Tavi says, I'm starting to think that the next leg down in stocks could look like the 87 crash. Liquidity is drying up. NASDAQ is about to break support. And the Fed is not stepping in for now. A big gap down could be ahead of us. Uh, McFly and then KFAB, then I'm going to go to Jim Bianco. McFly, what would you say to that? Yeah, I agree. Look, we haven't seen the spike in VIX, so it's not done yet. I don't see this just being a very casual bounce back I, I, I don't see it happening personally speaking and i like i said to you i think we are just at the beginning of this crisis it hasn't started yet so you know typically housing will take a year to bottom after the stock market crash we haven't had the crash yet so it's it's due so when are we coming people are just looking at, at the blow off top coming off but that isn't a crash McFly, first time we speak, I really, really enjoy your comments. Please please come back to this room in the future. This is fantastic. K K sure. uh, yeah, some, some of the smarter uh, ball and options people that, that I read and know have been talking about a gamma wall because of the selling that's gone on. And if you think about that, the way to ignite that selling pressure is a gap lower open because of something going on in Europe. So if you get a Credit Suisse have go belly up Sunday night or some other time, and we gap down two or three or 4% on a Monday morning or on a Tuesday morning, that triggers all of that put selling that's been going on. And, and market makers are going to have to flip. And then the put sellers are going to have to flip. And that's basically, you know, to the point around uh, the, the analog with 87 with portfolio insurance, that's basically what it is. You end up having a feedback loop of people that were offsides trying to capture something and they all have to move at the same time in the other direction. Wow. That's that's Eight. what I see as well. Yeah. And yeah, uh, perfect. Awesome. All right. Our good friend, Jim Bianco, Mr. Bianco, please weigh in. We've, we've, we've been doing all, we've been having a party without you. Please join. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of your comments about um, the sentiment in the put buying, I just wanted to say that 
sentiment is not symmetrical. You know, in a bull market, there is no such thing as overbought. I mean, we went all the way in the last bull market to FOMO and Tina, that it was just perpetual and you couldn't get bullish enough. In a bear market, you can't get, uh, I mean, you couldn't get bullish enough. In a bear market, you can't get bearish enough. As I was jokingly saying, sentiment and these levels will go to apocalyptic or suicidal levels. Are we mixing the Kool-Aid in Jonestown yet? That's where we're going to go if this is a bear market. And it definitely appears to be. You know, the great analyst Ned Davis once liked to say that I've got a set of indicators that work perfectly in a bull market, and I've got another set of indicators that work perfectly in a bear market. Tell me if we're in a bull or bear, and I'll tell you which one to use. But come to think of it, if you know we're in a bull or bear, you don't need these indicators. Well, if we're in a bear market, the indicators that you were using in a bull market, they don't work. You've got to use bear market indicators. So when people get all exercised about record foot buying, that was two weeks ago that we first heard about that. And we look at what the market's done. Yeah, that would have been great in 2019. That would have been great in 2018. But when we're off 25% year to date in 2022, that is not the level that you're going to see that would put in a bottom. Now, the market is chaotic, it's illiquid, and a lot of other things. So, you know, anything is possible here, but don't think that the, the standard metrics that you would look for for a buying opportunity from three years ago are going to work today. Second point I want to make, um, Friday, the 10-year yield finished up on the week 14 basis points, uh, close to 682 from six, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 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 382 from 368. And that's the ninth consecutive week that it has been up in yields. goes back to August 5th. The last time it did nine consecutive weeks was the week ending April 1st of 1994, 28 years ago. So it's been 28 years since we've seen a run like this. What happened the following week? The stock market was down three and a half percent. Now that doesn't sound like much by today's standards, but that was the worst week in three and a half years. You gotta go back to October, 1990. Before that, the last time we had a string of nine consecutive weeks was October 16th of 1987. We all know what happened the following week. That was the stock market crash of 87. And before that was May 25th of 1984. So what I'm trying to say is the string that we've seen in the, in the bond market of nine weeks in a row up, it's only a fourth time in 40 years we've seen it. The other three times this happened, the stock market fell apart. Why? Now, yes, the statisticians out there say four times in 40 years, it's not statistically significant. Yeah, I get that. But let me offer you what's going on here. When you go nine weeks in a row with yields up, the stock market gets to its breaking point. It can't handle yields anymore at going up. And so yields have to stop going up. Well, what's one good way to stop yields going up? Smash the stock market. That's what we've seen happening in the last couple of weeks. And that's what we might see happening unless a central bank or somebody else artificially stops these yields from rising. This is the problem. And tying it back to my previous comment, this is why if we're in a bear market, you can't use bull market metrics to say this is the level of oversold. So, you know, you said, can the market stay oversold longer than you can remain solvent? Absolutely. If we're in a bear market. And like I said, but if we're in a bull market, you could scream FOMO and Tina all you want. And the market keeps going up because it's a bull market. I'll stop there if you got any questions. Yeah, Jim, let me follow up. Jim, let me follow up with a question. Hey, George, can I? Yeah, go ahead. Can I, go. Can I, I, I can, Jim, can you just repeat the, those years again? You said 94, 84, and what was the metric? 
The 10-year yield is up nine weeks in a row. So go back to August 5th, every single week, calendar week, it's been up nine weeks in a row. The last time that happened was the week ending April 1st, 1994. Nine weeks in a row, it was up then to 10-year yield. The following week, the stock market was down 3.5%. Doesn't sound like a lot, but it was the worst week in three and a half years. Prior to that, we were had yields. We all know this one probably. George, you probably remember this one. We were up nine weeks in a row, ending the week of October 16th, 1987. So yields were going up. The, 10, the 30-year yield actually went above 10%. Uh, um, on that day as well. The following week was the stock market crash. The next one was May 25th of 1984. The following couple of weeks, the stock market had its worst correction since the bull market began in August of 82. Remember, that was May of 84, since August of 82. So when the stock market goes nine weeks in a row, I mean, sorry, excuse me, when the bond market yields go up nine weeks in a row, what is my interpretation of that? that the stock market says, I can't handle this anymore. This is too much, too fast. And the reaction is pretty toxic every time it happens. And we finished nine weeks in a row yesterday. And look at what the stock market's been doing the last two weeks going into that nine weeks in a row. So either somebody's got to artificially stop yields from rising or the stock market will do it. Those are all during Fed tightening cycles, right? 84, 94, and 87? Yes, they were. And we're in a Fed tightening cycle now, too. And and was it the Fed stopping that put that peak in yields ultimately? No, I think it was the I think it was that the stock market threw a riot by tanking hard enough that it kind of forced everybody it forced the Fed's hand or it forced the market's hand to stop raising rates and start worrying more about a reverse wealth effect leading to some kind of deep recession or a deeper recession or a recession of some type. And that's why you saw a rally in, in the bond market. Yeah, le- leading indicators were not recessionary in n- either of those or n- none of those three. So in 84, 87 and 94, it was growth rate cycle slowdowns, just slowdowns, mid-cycle slowdowns, not recessionary. Yeah. And no, so I'm asking because that those 84 and 94 are two of the four times the Fed was raising rates and we didn't go into a recession. Uh, just what KFAB was was talking about. I think you know, in those periods, also the econ- yeah the economy was fine, but we also had falling inflation too. We were past the inflation peak, and what the stock market what the stock market corrections did in '84 now it wasn't as big as of course '87 was it halted the rate cycle is it, you know so that ended that pain. Point is is that the pain of higher rates is really starting to hurt. And I'll repeat what I said before. Either artificially somebody's got to stop it. And I say that because that's what the Bank of England temporarily did last week, at least in the UK. And there's been some spillover effect here. Or the stock market will stop this rate hike by, by selling off hard enough that it'll just change everybody's thinking. So, Jim, could you uh, – a couple of follow-up questions for me. Thanks, Joe. It was really, really, really helpful. Great, great. The historical context is, is superb. Um. Could you just, around the idea that we've seen such a rapid increase in rates, my humble opinion, I suspect yours, uh, the UK pension situation is not, you know, it's not the only, uh, those aren't the only players that are going to get in trouble. What's the likelihood that there are some other people who are in trouble right now, severely compromised, and, and that just hasn't gotten public yet? And, and, and 
when you see a rapid move like this in a major economic variable, be it rates, oil, whatever, it takes a little time for the bias to float to the surface. But it might be helpful for the audience, who may, for all of us in the room, who maybe aren't as completely familiar with what happened in the UK. Maybe you could give sort of uh, the dummies 101 version of what happened. And then, and then what's the likelihood that there's some other people who are similarly caught on the wrong side of this whole thing? Well, to give you the, the bottom line, it's that there's like a hundred percent likelihood that somebody's caught somewhere um, in a bad place because of this rise in rates. I was on the legal ag um, spaces a little bit earlier today, and I'll repeat what I said there. Ten years ago, in um, 2012, we had the London whale problem out of uh, J.P. Morgan, where they had one uh, London uh, CDS trader that lost a boatload of money. And it led to congressional investigations and a giant write-down and a restructuring at J.P. Morgan. And there was calls for more regulation. And Jamie Dimon pointed out in defense of J.P. Morgan, trying to fight back with more regulation, that every day, this was 10 years ago, every day they provide 700 desks in J.P. Morgan offices worldwide for regulators who have a full-time job of just looking at J.P. Morgan. 700 regulators spend all day looking at everything J.P. Morgan did, and nobody saw that coming. No one saw it. It just popped up out of the blue. The point is, these are not incompetent people. It's more of the case that the financial system is so bloody complicated and opaque that no one really understands what's going on. I used to joke that whenever you ask anybody about like bank earnings or what's going on in the financial system, there's two, there's, two, there's two answers. Either you say it's too complicated to really understand uh, or you're making up something along the way. And so, yes, this is the problem with the financial system. It is very, very complicated and too difficult to understand. So when you look at things, and I tweeted this out on Wednesday, when you look at things like the MOVE index, which is the Merrill, it stands for Merrill Option Volatility Index. It's the VIX of the bond market had its second highest reading in 13 years. Only the, the pinnacle of the panic during uh, COVID in March of 2020 was one day higher than what we saw on Wednesday. When you see liquidity measures as measured by Bloomberg, it's some of the worst numbers that we've seen in 11 years. When you see financial stress measures like what Bank of America has being some of the worst numbers we've seen since coming out of the great financial crisis and understanding that the system is so complicated I don't know who, where, how, when, or why, but I do know that this is the environment where people get in trouble. Now, why do they get in trouble? Most people in this call have probably never traded a bond, and I'll assume that everybody has never traded a UK gilt uh, along the way. And the reason you don't trade them is they trade at par around 100. They have a very low interest rate, at least they did for the last 15 years. They're kind of boring. They don't do anything. I'd rather you know, trade Tesla and I'd rather trade Apple than trade some kind of a bond. Besides, they don't even trade on a, on a regulated exchange like the New York Stock Exchange. It's kind of hard to do. You're right. So who trades these things? Financial institutions. Why do they trade them instead of Tesla or, you know, or Apple? Because they get to use incredible amounts of leverage in the bond market. And we use the word repo, which is a repurchase agreement. Go buy $100 million worth of bonds. Do you have $100 million to pay for them? No, but I'll post them as collateral and I'll take out a loan, a repo loan, which has a one-day maturity and keep rolling it over every day to pay for it. So you buy these things 
on lots of leverage. Now, that's not new. We've done this since the beginning of time with the bond market. So it is inherently a levered animal. So when you start playing around in the bond market, like raising it aggressively like we've done, to seeing the, the worst total return sell-off ever, and I run that chart all the time on Twitter, all I know is when I look at that chart is I say, somebody's in a bad place. Somebody has to be in a bad place. There is no way the bond market with all the leverage it has can withstand that kind of a total return loss without there being problems everywhere which way in Sunday. Now, why haven't we seen those problems bubble to the surface? Well, maybe we did starting on Wednesday um, in the UK. And let's be clear on what happened in the UK. They intervened and the, the, the Bank of England put out a press release saying for financial stability uh, reasons, that is code word for somebody was going to fail. Somebody was going to fail. They couldn't even wait till Thursday morning. They had to do it midday on Wednesday and in the middle of a guilt auction. They threw that one into the middle of a guilt auction. That's how urgent it was for them to step in. And what did they accomplish? They forced the price of guilt prices way up. So at the end of the day, when you had to mark your positions to market, you marked them at a much higher price. Oh, good. I didn't, I didn't break capital requirements. I didn't violate regulatory rules. Um, I live another day. So what they did was a stay of execution, not actually fix the problem along the way. So yes, it's way, way too complicated to understand, oh, this person on this day is going to report this problem. But the environment and the losses and history says, when you see this happen, there is going to be problems that bubble to the surface. And the Janet Yellen made this comment, and I tweeted this out too a couple of days ago, uh, where she said, we will never have another financial crisis in our life. And she said, because the banks are properly capitalized. That is so off base, that is disqualifying. Because if you understand the financial system with all the leverage and the opacity, it is inherently an unstable system. It is prone to problems all the time. 2019 repo, 2008, the financial crisis, 2020, the response to COVID. Okay, we didn't know what, we didn't know COVID, we didn't know COVID was coming, but the financial system couldn't handle it. So that's why we had to have all of those massive problem interventions then and maybe right now this is how the financial system operates with all of its leverage and opacity and so to say that we will never have another financial crisis in our lifetime just is a signal that you really don't understand how the financial crisis how the financial system is structured yes we survive these problems yes but they don't come they don't go away unless we have first a lot of pain which forces a restructuring and then we move on from it and that's where we're at right now. Jim, thanks for that. That's terrific. I couldn't agree with you more. And I want, I want to take your comment, and as our Maxi friends would say, Jim, i got to ask you before that. Jim, can we have an office pool? Can we start, like, a guessing game? Like, when and if and under what conditions are you going to get rid of the laser eyes? <laughs> oh, um, that's a good <laughs> Uh, I, I, I mean, Jim, Jim, it's just not a good look. Like, I, I get, I mean, listen, Jim, we're friends. I'm not one of yeah. those ones who says he's a Maxi. You're not a Maxi. But, Jim, why would you walk around? I mean, like, now's not the time to go around with those glasses. Like, you're just asking for trouble, dude. Like, why do you do this? Oh, I know, because the laser eyes have grown into something much bigger than me. Look, quite frankly, between you and me, just don't repeat it to anybody, I'm kind of tired of the picture, and I wouldn't mind getting rid of it just from a picture standpoint. 
But I'm afraid that if I get rid of it, people are going to misunderstand what it means. Now, I do believe that the financial system could use a restructuring, could use a new idea and decentralized finance. I'm a big fan of it. It's going through winter. That's the whole thing with it. So, 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 Jim, if we were frat bro in college, I'm going to I'm going to pull this stunt on you now. I can't wait to see what happens. So, like, you know, some guys are degenerates like when you're in high school, they would do pranks like um, so we'll go out. And get all those magazines, subscription cards, and you fill out somebody's name on it, right? And next thing you know, said victim is receiving hundreds of subscriptions, okay? It's like one of the meanest things you can do to somebody, right? So here's what, like you said, between between us, okay, in a room full of 1,400 people, it's a good thing nobody heard what you said. It's about to hear what I'm going to say. So here's what I want everyone to do. I want everyone to tweet out what Jim's new avatar should be. And tag him with it, okay? Jim needs help. Jim needs a new avatar, and we need to help him, all right? So, and I, you guys, it never ceases to underestimate, never underestimate the creativity, you guys. So, either DM me or Jim or just put it out there in public. But we all agree. It's, it's, it's like when my girlfriend says, hey, George, you need your clothes. It's just something looking on you. Jim, those glasses got to go. I'm just sorry. As a friend. Okay, okay. You just ruined my you just ruined my weekend. It's like I have to wade through 10,000 million tweets. <laughs> Uh, but thank you very much. Field and stream. Field and stream is on its way to you, George. <laughs> All right. I want to go to Neely and then Newman. Hey, Neely, what's up? Hey, George. I wanted to go back to the consumer piece. Um, as you know, that's my life's work. And, you know, the the thing about the consumer holding up, I'm, I think I'm just becoming increasingly more critical thinking or possibly cynical about hearing those statements over and over again without really considering what's been going on in small business. I mean, small business very likely could end up being our subprime equivalent uh, in this next impending financial crisis. Uh, small <coughs> business owners are consumers. There's 32 million small businesses in the United States of America. Small business owners employ consumers. They employ about 60 million people in the United States of America. Consumers are the economy. We have 160 million consuming households in the United States. I mean, this is not an insignificant portion of our economy, but candidly, it doesn't get a lot of rhetoric and research out there. And what we saw in September alone from each NFIB, you know, the National Federation of Independent Business, as well as the Richmond survey, which just came out this week, the Fed um, CFO survey, it's not good. It's really not good. I mean, I think perhaps the scariest thing is on the NFIB numbers, the earnings results are actually trending back to pre-pandemic levels in that month, right? That time period where we shut down the economy for 30 days, but the PPP money hadn't arrived yet. I mean, we're back down to that level on that same sentiment indicator and that still hasn't seen increases from healthcare insurance, property tax elevations, auto insurance, electricity and heating costs, not to mention rising rates on personal loans, business loans, line of credits, HELOCs. I mean, these are the things that keep me up at night over the weekend. Actually, I slept pretty well last night. But in general, these are the things that kind of keep me up is we're not really talking about small business. And I'm, I'm deeply concerned, particular as particularly as the EIDL loans, the disaster loans, start to go into repayment this month. So something we're thinking about. Yeah, Neely, that's a, that's a terrific insight because, you know, if you, if you get away from this sort of top-down macro view of the economy, instead look at it from a bottom-up basis, maybe for more of a, an Austrian school, and we'll get KFAB to weigh in here. Um, what you're saying is deeply negative. 
Um, and as you rightly point out, it's a lifeblood of the economy. Neely, you mentioned 160 million households. How many uh, businesses are there? There's 32 million-ish sort of small businesses in the United States of America. Any, any idea how many? Those are small, small businesses or total businesses? And how many of those people, how many are Small well, businesses. Any idea how many they employ? About 60 million people. So in the workforce is what, 160 million or something like that? Yep. That's a huge yep. number. Yep. Wow. It is. It is. And look, to be clear, you know, we, you know, in our business at Distill Advisory, we advise, you know, public companies on economy. But what makes us unique versus every other economist that crosses that threshold right into their room is that we do economy. We actually have ownership in small businesses. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm stating this with one foot in reality and one foot in research. And, you know, I, I think that's what concerns us. We were just with, you know, some community regional bank um, folks this, even this week. And, you know, obviously I won't share with what we heard, but what I can tell you is they're interested in this conversation. And I think, and it makes sense because, you know, regional community banks care about consumers more than, you know, kind of the big five in some ways. And, and I, I think we're just really concerned about the lack of um, rigor and rhetoric around this because I think they're more levered today than they probably were back during the GFC. I think Both right. on the consumer side of their business as well as right. their, their, their business side. 100%. Um, hey, Jim Biak, are you still there? Uh, if so, um, yes, I am. You, yeah, could you uh, weigh in just a little bit here? Um, and by the way, for those of you that aren't a subscriber to Jim's service, I can't recommend it strongly enough. Uh, I'm a subscriber, I urge you to. Uh, reach out to Bianca Research, get a free trial, and uh, I think it's really a fabulous product, and Jim did not ask me to say that, I'm just saying that as a consumer of the product. Jim, um, some of the data you refer to in your research, you speak about, or you've really focused a lot on um, the month-to-month -month inflation numbers, Cleveland Fed, and also uh, some of the employment data, you've showed the, um, the quits, the, uh, the, 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 the difference for the room, maybe explain, What's been happening to uh, wage costs year on year, also sequentially, and the gap between in wage increases between those who are quitting their jobs for a higher pay or staying, and that thing has been widening and widening. Can you just update us on the two key things here, which, you know, we live in a world of month to month, but what you see happening on, this, on the sequential inflation data and also on the jobs data? Yeah, on the jobs data, um what it is, first of all, there's a report called the JOLTS report, the Job Opening Flavor Turnover Report, which if you, it's like the old help wanted uh, ad advertises for newspapers, which used to be an indicator we were watching many years ago, pre-internet. And it shows that there's 11 million open jobs in the United States, and there's about five and a half million unemployed people. So the ratio of open jobs to unemployed people is 1.98, almost two. That is not only the highest it's ever been, it's far and away the highest that it has ever been. There are employers begging, begging to get people back to work, even though we're at a 3.7% unemployment rate. Now, to be fair, just so everybody understands this, not every open, not every unemployed person is qualified for every open job, either, you know, if you don't have the experience, you don't have the education, or geographically, you don't live where the job happens to be. 
uh, but there is no shortage of jobs. So what are employers doing to try and get people to get these jobs is they're paying up. The Atlanta Fed breaks down wage growth by job stayers, job switchers. On average, the United States has wage inflation of around five and a half percent. That is, you know, um, that's a very high number right now. And it's very problematic for the Fed because if you have five percent inflation, wage inflation, you could pay five percent inflation uh, for goods. And that's not going to bring down the inflation rate anytime soon. But the job stayers, now there's more of them, is around 4% wage growth. The job switchers is around 7% wage growth. That 3% gap is a record. So we are seeing employers giving people premiums to switch their job. I have an open job. I want you to come work with me. You have another job. I'll just give you more money to switch to this job. This is problematic. I've argued this is problematic for the Fed because they want the inflation rate to go down. But if wages are going to stay at these levels, it's not going to go down. And you're also seeing it in the wage numbers, too. Every month this year, payroll report, the next one will be next Friday, has been at least 300,000 jobs every month this year. The economists tell us we need at least 50,000 jobs to cover um, population growth. We're getting 300. So we're getting more than what we need. Initial claims fell under the initial claims for unemployment insurance fell under 200,000 this past Thursday for the first time in five months. And it's been in a downtrend now for a couple of months. So what's interesting is when people say, oh, the, all these rate hikes are going to kill the labor market and there's problems in the labor market. Look, I, I'm completely open to the idea. It will. But the current data. 300,000 jobs, five-month low in claims. Job switchers are getting 7% raises versus 4% raises, which is still a decent number to stay at your job. There's no top-line evidence that the labor market is in trouble. Why is that important? Because for all the people that are screaming, yelling, the Fed's got to pivot because the labor market's falling apart. That's not the way they see it. Now, you know, so they're going to continue with their foot on the brake if you will, continuing to try and raise rates and slow things down. George, can I just add one perspective to that? Please go for it. Okay. So Jim, totally agree with your assessment on the labor market. And I would say, you know, the number one question we're asked in boardrooms right here, right now is, you know, will we, or won't we, you know, be in a recession or are we, or are we not? And, you know, the, the, we aren't, camp is the only thing literally the only thing they really have to stand on is the labor piece and so the two questions that we respond back with um because any good consultant or professor which is what i do in my free time when i'm that's my hobby is you answer questions with questions right socratically and you know the two questions i ask back is all right well will a surprising rising federal deficit eventually lead to job loss or a slowing down right? The inability to reabsorb the claims uh, because we got to talk about the deficit, number one. And number two, uh, you know, small business, right? I mean, I think that's the other thing that we bring up and that's of great interest right now. And, the, and to your point on jobless claims and job openings, you're, you're of course spot on because you're the man. Um, it's job openings and it's jobless claims are kind of the leading indicators of the labor market. And that's what you look at. One thing though, that we observed in looking at claims data this year and the way we do it is we look at it on a four-week moving average, 
and we compare it with the base year of 2019. Tight labor market to tight labor market. Like not year over year, doesn't make sense to compare to last year or the prior year. You could say, let's look at it relative to the last time we had a tight labor market 2019, just to see. And we've had three tremors in initial claims so far this year. And each one, to, to observe on them, each one has been met with immediate effect and slowdown in consumption, I think. So that's something key to, to keep in mind. Consumption defined by commentary out of the biggies like Walmart, Target, you know, Nordstrom, Restoration Hardware, kind of the, the discretionary side, right, of consumption. And the other thing to observe when you look at the data this way is it's taken longer each time to reabsorb those claims. So it's not so much the fact that where we're at on an absolute basis, it's the next time we have a tremor, how long will it take? That's what we're looking at to get really, really surgical. But I really appreciate your comments. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Um, the only thing I'll add, I'll add two comments and, and then I'll throw a question at you uh, as well. The first comment is if you look at ADP um, does do um, an estimate of payrolls, it, it hasn't been very good in predicting the monthly numbers in the past. But they do break down the numbers by the hiring of big firms, medium-sized firms, and small firms. And I've also seen some other studies. You've probably seen them, too. We cannot overstate that, like, in the last 30 or 40 years, something like 100% of the job growth has come from small companies. If you're a big company that employs thousands of people, you're in the business of introducing technology and productivity to get rid of workers. The example I've used is in 19, today, the, the number of people on a GM assembly line to make a car is 12% the number it was in 1980. It's robotics and automation. So you're getting rid of workers. So where does everybody get their job? They get it from a company of less than 100 employees. That is where all the job growth is. If you have a problem in new business formation and companies of less than 100 employees, you don't have any job growth. Because GM is not going to hire thousands of people. They're going, to, they're going to make more robots and get rid of people is what they're going to wind up doing. The second thing I'll throw out, and I'll you know, do the Socratic method back to you. I'll throw out a question back to you. Greg Gaff of the Wall Street Journal had a story last week about the change of attitude among workers after the lockdown and the reopening. There has been a complete reevaluation of the importance of work. And that, you know, we call it the great resignation. We call it quiet quitting. It was called lay flat during Omicron where you're supposed to do work in bed. Uh, but people are not willing to take a job at any price, nose to the grindstone, to top, start, um, you know, moving forward with their career. They'll do what they need to do to collect a paycheck. And to use a crypto phrase, they want to prefer to go out and touch grass and do other things with their life. Are you seeing that as well, too? Uh, I, re I remember reading this article because obviously I'm an ardent reader of the Wall Street Journal, but also they were featuring uh, nurses from my home state of Minnesota right on the front. So, yes, um, uh, very much uh, read that article as well. This is actually the third topic that we're talking about very much in boardrooms. It's the can you rebuild trust in the workplace? And from our vantage point, you have to go all the way back to April of 2020 when we decided to um, first fire 24 million people overnight. Right. Secondly, claim that we had two classes of employees, essential and non-essential. Um, we decided to, three, pay the non-essential workers 
uh, approximately 50 to 60% more at the lower bound of the income demographic than they were currently making while they were sitting at home during the federal pandemic unemployment compensation duration of 18 weeks. And then fourth, while that was happening, you had uh, the rest of the workers having to do all of their jobs, right, with less resources, higher anxiety, higher, you know, duress, basically, um, get paid less while watching their body buddies stay at home and buy cars, RVs, and boats. So, yes, we think there's been a fracturing of trust in the workplace, and we're just continuing to see this trickle effect of it. It's not just about the hours. I think it goes all the way back to that initial kind of trust moment being fractured because of the pandemic. It's a great question when we think about the questions of, you know, what do we know because it's factual? What do we believe because we've invested the time to research it and care and, and have rigor around it? What do we not yet know? And that kind of stumps us. And what are the longer term effects? I would say that question sits in that third camp right here, right now. Um, you know, how do you spend that positively? Uh, it's an opportunity, candidly, for consumer, uh, consumer brands and services to step in and be a source of assurance and trust, right, in a time when people are looking for that trust factor again. Uh, but it is definitely something to be contended with, and only a recession will kind of wash that out. This is when, uh, um, you know, at, <laughs> this is when we get to finally... Uh, us nerdy economists get to finally put some spotlight on theory of moral sentiments and not just focus on the wealth of nations. So that's how I'd answer it back. Just a quick follow-up um, on this subject. The Partnership for New York City, which surveys New York City um, offices, reported in September that only 9%, 9% of New York offices are five days a week. 16% of New York City office workers are now fully remote, more than go to the office five days a week. I've argued... We're, we're two and a half years past the pandemic and New York City, where you've got Jamie Dimon and you've got Dave Solomon at Goldman Sachs threatening everybody that they have to get back to the office five days a week. And you can only get to nine percent that the era of five days in the office is over and we are moving on from that. And just as parenthetically, a couple of days ago, GM was pushing General Motors was pushing their office workers to go back three days a week. And they had to relent because they got so much backlash against it. That's important because if you take 160 million people and half of those can be work from home, a doctor can't, a surgeon can't, a policeman can't work from home. Um, so if you take 80 million people and only 9% of them are in the office five days a week where all 80 million were in the office five days a week before the pandemic, now they're home four days a week, including Saturday and Sunday, or maybe five days a week, depending on if they go to the office two, three days a week. That is a gigantic lifestyle change. Your consumption basket changes. Your view on things change. The economy is going to be different with that kind of workforce, with that kind of time away from the office. You consume less services. You consume services because you were in an office all day long and you couldn't do things for yourself. Now you do things for yourself. You consume more goods. And the personal consumption data shows that. We are consuming relatively more goods than services relatively meaning we still consume more services just on a relative basis the percentage of services is falling and the percentage of goods is going up but the percentage of services is still over 50 percent so there is a massive change because of this coming to the economy and i think the first level that we saw this was the inventory problems and everything else we've seen at the at the retailers they're just now starting to get the idea 
that the 2022 consumption basket is very different than the 2019 consumption basket. And that is going to flow through to a lot of other things. And that's one of the reasons why I think that this inflation problem we have is going to be very persistent uh, until we finally get a handle on what this new post-pandemic economy looks like and we start adjusting for it. But unfortunately, we'd rather argue whether there is a new post-pandemic economy. And a lot of people, basically Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, keep telling you there isn't. Just wait. In two years, it'll look exactly like 2019 all over again. Everybody will be back in the office five days a week. I'm not so sure that's going to be the case. Say, Jim, that's fantastic. And you're so generous with your with your help. It really helping a lot of people. So I salute you. Just one quickie. I don't want to tell stories out of school, but um, and you, you tweeted out about this as well. Um, in terms of the inflation numbers, uh, you were mentioning how using the Cleveland Fed Nowcast, um, they're looking at September at 5.1 percent. So the whole, you know, the crowd that was transitory that, you know, is now saying it's peaked. And we've talked many times how the fact that it's peaked is not the issue. The issue more being the trajectory of the speed with which inflation comes down and in a world where we live week to week, month to month. Do you think um, the, the, the its peak crowd is going to be disappointed by the September inflation number? Yeah, I, I think it, it definitely can. What that was, for, that chart, just so everybody knows, is last week during Chairman Powell's press conference, he made a statement that he would like to see all interest rates go into a positive real yield, meaning all interest rates go above the inflation rate. Then he went on to tell you which inflation rate he's referring to, core PCE. The August number was reported yesterday. It came in year over year at 4.9. Cleveland Fed does a real-time guesstimate. It's reasonable as to what they think the, the, the number would be right now. Their September estimate is 5.1%. Jay Paul just told us he wants every interest rate on the yield curve above the inflation rate. It's 5.1%. That's the one he's using right now. Interest rates, the high end is around 415, 418. The low, um, that would be the two-year note. And the low end is the three-month bill at around 330. If we take Jay Powell face value, interest rates have a long way to go unless you believe that the inflation rate is going to collapse. Now, I've been hearing for two years the inflation rate is going to be collapsing, and people are um, you know, still saying that. Maybe it does. But more likely, as you said, I'm in the camp, too, that's probably peaked. It's the trajectory that it comes down. If it's sticky on the way down, and it has been trending higher the last few months. And remember, this is core inflation. So we're taking out gas prices. We're taking out food prices. So the Ukraine war is somewhat insulated from this. If that is indeed the case, what Jay Powell just told us last week is he thinks interest rates have a lot more to go on the upside refer back to my comments about nine weeks in a row of interest rates going up and how the, the markets are having a hard time handling that. Jay just told us we're just getting warmed up with the rate hikes or with the increases of, in, of, of overall interest rates. This Something's got to give here. We cannot have these rates keep going like this and the stock market decide, okay, now I don't care about interest rates anymore and I'm going to start going back up. Oh boy, you're a barrel left today, Jim. Uh, Mick, Mick Fly, did you want to weigh in? McFly, please unmute yourself. Yeah, George, I just wanted to add uh, to Jim's um, very interesting statement there that uh, the UK in June trialled its four-day work week um, with over 70 companies and 4,000 employees. Um, and I think, and I've heard the same happen in Germany, so when you start to see these trials being run across 
you know, G7 countries. They tend to be, you know, what a picture of the future becomes. So I think it's very interesting you mentioned that, Jim. And there was another point as well. What I've seen is here as well is people misunderstand what these price caps are on energy. So since the Russia fiasco, the UK uh, government has come out and said that nobody will have bills that are in excess of £2,500, or roughly the same in US dollars per year per household. Now, that that isn't the case. What it means is, is that they will subsidize a price up to that moment, up to that amount, and anything above that will be charged at a much higher rate. So it is a form of rationing. It doesn't look like it at the moment, but if we see similar price rises in energy and we start to see similar policies implemented, I think we're moving into an era of less growth, less expenditure, more energy rationing. So it's very interesting when you mentioned that, Jim. Was, I thought, hold on a second, I've seen this, and it's, it's happening in more places than simply the US. Excellent insight, McFly. All right, let's go to uh, Mark Newman, and then after Mark Newman, we go to uh, O'Hare. Mark, please unmute yourself, Mark. Hey, everybody. Uh, George, another amazing uh, space. I just, look, I've been listening for quite a while. I've actually been able to accomplish things and hear great insight the whole way. I'm sort of sitting around the campfire and wanted to sort of address a couple things. I'm going to be quick. I just want to sort of food for thought along the way here. First, Neely, I, I really think what Neely hit on was important in the sense that, George, we remember, we know the zombie companies that exist in Japan and have always existed. You know, I think the Russell has maybe less than 50% profitable companies in its 2000 index. And so Neely mentioned the banks as the key sort of source on these small businesses. I think that's critical, right? Because when the banks get in trouble, that's when sort of things become much more serious. Um, I wanted to also have McFly was talking about the, the put sales and KFAB and I talked about this on Friday. There are banks out there that are systemically, systematically, excuse me, selling one, three and five day options puts. This is their program. They've been doing it. They actually started it back around COVID times and it really worked badly then, but they've redoubled their efforts. So that keeps Vol a little suppressed. And I would also add, I was talking to some guys with the Tiger Globals and Melvin sort of out of the, uh, out of the picture. And, and many with lower gross now, there is a little less reason for end users to be buying puts. Not everyone, obviously, but that also may keep Vol a little bit more suppressed. Um, I also wanted to touch on what Shrub said. I was debating in my head whether a slightly buzzed Shrub on Friday or a sober uh, or the other day versus sober. It's equally invigorating and super uh, great to listen to. I want to remind everyone of this sort of Adam Smith, the money game. When he talks about in this book of not hiring traders who have any memory, right? Someone else mentioned last week the global financial crisis already 14, 13, 14 years prior. A lot of the people trading now are the new cycle of traders. And that is how these banks get into that same pattern. They hire newer, greener traders with no memory, and they're doing these 50-year trades, right? And as 50-year trades go, the more uncertain it becomes, the worse the 50th year becomes. So I thought that was something also for everyone to think about. And then finally, KFAB had mentioned the, I think it was KFAB, about the liquidity in Apple and the fact that Apple is still a couple hundred bips above the spoos for the year and a thousand bips above the Qs. It probably has to trade down to the Qs like Microsoft and Google and Amazon have. And remember, I think it was again Shrub the other day. It's, Apple's the most liquid thing in the world. So when people get in trouble, 
They're going to their most liquid, Apple, and doing their business there. And I think that's something very important to keep an eye on. Now, I'm going to circle back and just wrap it up with this. In the past year, one of the things we've seen a lot of places is civil unrest, right? Sri Lanka, Netherlands, uh, a lot of places. And right now, as McFly hinted at and uh, Shrub did as well, the banks are put uh, the banks, excuse me, the central banks and governments are putting price caps on things. This is to keep the, the bread and circus going and make sure that no, no one revolts. Now, Doomberg the other day on that, that, that spaces talked about a cold winter. So I want to place this to everybody and say, what's the likelihood of G7 unrest in the next year based on all of this stuff that we're all looking about and talking about here? And that to me is sort of a, I wouldn't call it a black swan. It's probably a brown swan out there, the civil unrest nature based on all the things we're talking about. And then the last thing I'm going to say is I know we always say it's not different this time. It's not different. Well, look, the TLT, my bond proxy, down 30% year to date. The Q's down 32% year to date. Spies down about 24. That seems different this time. Like Jim's talking about the nine weeks in a row, the bond yields rising. Like we're at a point where I hate to say different this time, but this one feels kind of different. So anyone can riff on any of that stuff, but that's the way I see things here. And I really love the spaces and like we're sitting at the campfire and the fire's burning hot. That's it. Mark, always love your, your commentary. I had two questions for you. Um, so you mentioned people going to sell what they can, uh, selling their Apple and whatnot, um, using the FANG stocks perhaps as a piggy bank. And I saw something in FinTwit last night, which showed for the first time this year, pretty significant retail selling. Um, the footprint that you see in the market and what's getting whacked are finally coming from the generals would seem to suggest that. Um, do you have any perspective on if, in fact, the retail investor uh, is finally giving up, that the heat's gotten too, 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 too hot in the kitchen and we may be at the breaking point? So I would, uh, I would, I would throw this one. Uh, what I throw against the wall in this question, uh, George, is, you know, I've obviously been a, quite a big student lately and for a while here on the ESG aspect. And I talked to some people and the funds that are getting launched these days, still about 70 to 80 percent of them have some ESG related uh, baloney in it or whatever. It has ESG tags to it. The seventh, the, the top holding in all these ESG funds is Apple. So if retail is in these this these funds, which I assume they are being you know guided in, they're every you know with the S and P weight at seven point three percent of Apple, every hundred bucks going into the SP type funds or even these ESG funds, seven eight nine percent are going into Apple, seven eight nine cents of every dollar. So I think people have been piled into this, and like I asked, like I asked on Twitter and stuff, who out there doesn't other than me? I don't know who out there doesn't own Apple at this point. So I think there's still Newman, you know, Newman, Newman. There are some recently launched ETFs that be short Apple. I can't say more than that. Okay, well, you're not going to get a short cover in Apple. I can tell you that. <laughs> short interest is like 70 bips in Apple. There's no short cover coming. So unless there's the incremental buyer, and we know that those passive buying games by these ETFs are starting to dwindle, then I think that you know wh who's the buyer. Up here at 25 times forward, Apple. Right. Uh, I'm not. So, 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 Mark, let me ask a slightly different question. KFAB, I want to bring you in here as well. Maybe McFly. So, it again concerns um, 
possible sellers. So I asked about, you know, for, about foreign central banks where like we know the SMB, you know, it's got what is 150 billion portfolio in equities and, you know, they own Tesla and all this craziness. And so to the extent that foreign central banks are now um, wanting to maybe prop up their currencies, stop them from going down further and they go to sell assets, be they their FANG stocks or treasuries, because, you know, one of the things you're seeing now in Japan and elsewhere um, it, 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 the thought is that they're starting. They're, they're increasingly sell, they're selling their, their their treasuries. So first, to mark a, my question is less about um, equities; it's more about fixed income and bonds and just international capital flows. So I was wondering if you had any perspective, Mark. If you don't, or KFAB or McFly or anybody who's on the panel wants to speak up about this, the the idea of foreign central banks uh, increasingly. Uh, selling uh, their treasuries as we were into this sort of doom loop, the strong dollar. So to offset that, they have to sell their treasury or some other dollar to assets. I don't know. Mark, if you want to take a shot at that or KFAB, you want to take a shot at that or McFly? I'll just take a brief one, a quick one. You know, um, I think it was maybe Shrub the other day on maybe Thursday or the other space uh, days get mixed up. He had met, he said something really smart, which was after the day Apple got hit was the day the pound was rallying. Right. And that was maybe, and look, Bailey Gifford is a huge UK-based fund that owns a ton of Apple. They own a ton of Tesla. So they may be deciding to bring that money home. The last thing they want to do is sell their locals. And then the other thing, and then I'll pass it to someone else who may have greater insight, you know, the dollar is so strong now relative to so many things. If you're long Apple and then you bring it home, the dollar, you get, you sell Apple, you got your dollars and you buy your own currency, that's a nice trade. I mean, I can speak, I've been long uh, Japan tobacco. Okay. On the other side, and it's been done okay. And then I had to, I wanted to repatriate and do some other things. I sold out of Japan tobacco and then I had to bring it back to dollars. So I actually lost there. Uh, I was a good trade in the, the, the JT tobacco to 2914, but I actually had a bad currency translation. So I'm thinking other on the other side, all these guys have been long Apple and then the dollar's been ripping. That's a nice time to bring home some dollars. Yeah. So 100%. I'll, leave it, I'll leave it to someone else. Sure. Uh, K. Fabric McFly, do you have any perspective on possibility or likelihood of, uh, you know, foreign central banks uh, increasingly having to sell treasuries to offset the uh, currency doom loop that we're in? Yeah, I, I don't think it's just uh, treasuries. I mean, I, I joked this morning um, that I've had the Swiss National Bank on my bear market blow up bingo card since May. Um when I wrote a piece and I looked at their balance sheet, I mean, it's not just treasuries. If you think about everything that a Swiss national bank hedge fund would own, and they had uh, at that, as of the end of uh, March, when I looked at it, they had about 937 billion francs in foreign currency investments. So think about what's going on in currency markets. Think about what's going on in rates markets and think about what's going on in equity markets. And what that would mean to a leveraged hedge fund, uh, and what their mark-to-market losses could be. So again, there's not a, they have a 13F, so you, you can look up what they actually own in U.S. stocks. But you know who knows what they own in the equity in the fixed income uh, derivative space and um, in in the FX space. I could com- just just again talk, talking about the stuff that uh, that Jim Bianco was talking about. You know. Um, where, where there's leverage, uh, th- these kind of markets tend to go around and on a seek and destroy mission for leveraged players at, at, at different times and in kind of a rolling um, uh, seek and destroy mission. So I, you know, uh, 
Now, the question is, what will happen? Like, what will the Swiss government do? I, I, I'm watching the Swiss franc as kind of a, and, and the Swiss franc in the cross rates, um, you know, as big of a problem as the yen's having. It, uh, the Swiss franc's not making a new high versus the yen, for example, on long-term charts, um, looking at it versus pound sterling, that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of watching the franc for signs that, um, you know, there could be some significant problems emerging at, at the Swiss National Bank. By the but, way, by the way, you could also add in the Norges Bank and the price of crude, right? Absolutely. Cr crude's gotten smoked. Norges Bank's a massive owner of Apple. And if you see the, the, the crone, that thing's, you know, that thing's been dying a slow death, too. So that's something to keep an eye on. 100%. Let me, let me ask a more general question uh, for both for KFAB and Newman, because you're both very market-oriented animals. Step back for a second. I was going to blurt this out earlier. I didn't want to interrupt who was making the point. It was Jim Bianco. And I was just thinking more generally about leverage writ large. In case I apologize, you're such a prolific author. If you've written on this, I apologize. If not, here's, a, here's a, an idea for a future piece. You don't have to cite me. But the idea of just leverage in general, forget about, you know, UK pension funds, but Newman. Let's go to the simple concept of pod shops, platforms. They all started in the aftermath of the GFC. That's when they really got big money inflows. And we all know why. They wanted to diversify their risk and don't take basis risk, take sector, sector risk, and, you know, long GM, short Ford, and then the next day you're long Ford, short GM, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So they run huge balance sheets, 5X, 10X levered. They have small basis risk, but the reason it works or was would work, I mean, you, gotta, you, know, you, you can generate just a few percent return and you lever it up and is the Englanders having a nice life out of it, all right? But you start taking your borrowing costs up, you know, what works nicely at 50 or 100 basis points in Thornton, you're down there, so I want you to come up here and talk about this because you have some of these guys as clients and maybe you can't show you too. Anyone else wants to talk on this point? I'm just considering wondering just getting away from the obvious stuff just thinking about just more generally the idea that the reason leverage writ large got pumped up so high i mean a asset prices going up but b also the carrying costs are de minimis so okay good here comes thornton so kfab newman if you have a good answer tommy will have a better answer and so now all of a sudden where um you know it's costing you 4.3% or whatever the number is uh, to run these positions, not 50 basis points. And you got a negative carry, not just because the barn costs are so high, but the, the prices are going down. Seems to me it's a formula for massive, massive leverage reduction. So I'm putting the cat amongst the pigeons. Um, I'm going to let Thornton go first since he was energized enough to jump up here and he hasn't had his chance yet. So, a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Tommy, will you be mine? Will you be mine? Please unmute yourself, Tommy. Thornton, you there? Unmute yourself, please. We can't hear you. All right. He doesn't want to talk up. Georgie, one, in one word, liquidity. Yeah. So doesn't, doesn't it mean a collapse in liquidity, Mark? I would think so because all of a sudden, you know, you, your, your dry powder has gotten sucked out and your positions have to get smaller. So you can't be there to absorb more or buy yeah, more. Or yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. So Newman, even if prices weren't going down, let's just give a box for them for the room to they can say can understand how this works. 
even if you weren't getting killed and prices going down, if your overnight funding cost is 1% and then it goes to 4%, ceteris paribus, doesn't it mean you got to reduce your balance sheet? You can't, the economics don't work. Oh, absolutely. And I've, I've known some folks at those shops you talk about and at 1% rates, they're, uh, they're kids in candy stores at uh, 6% rates, they're diabetics and uh, there's nothing they can eat on the shelves. So isn't this sort of like, this is a real hidden, I mean, this is not front page news for, you know, on, on the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, okay, fine. The, the UK pension funds are front page news. They blow up because they had a carry trade on. But these platform companies, you know, you take Citadel money and, you know, all the names doesn't really matter. If they got 30 or 40 billion in, 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 in assets, okay, equity capital, and then I've been shocked. I know Thornton's seen this. KFAB, I know you see this. So whoever is Mike is working should speak up. These guys are running like two, three hundred billion dollar gross positions. I mean, Newman, like, explain to me how this isn't just disastrous. No, that's that's the massive leverage game that everyone's riding. And look, I think um, look like, like look. Let's just look at Credit Suisse, right? They seem to be they seem to get over their skis, and then all of a sudden, when the snow's gone. They realize they're 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 on a double black diamond headed straight down, and I think that you know things move fast, and we've seen that. I think Jim hit on it. I think Shrub hit on it. Like all of a sudden, it, the 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 uh, twenty times levered bank sounds better than a hundred, but it's still twenty times levered. And so you you know you do hear about like that's that's that Citadel guy, the Citadel guys, they have these positions that are not more they're more than 20 times levered which is why a guy like ken has the ear of a lot of people on the inside to say look it can get messy fast if we don't fix something so i it feels like we're kind of you know i think most of the people in this room have been saying similar things in different language uh, not different voices we're kind of teetering close to that i, I yeah, think yeah we, yeah yeah but but newman newman i love you I, by the way I'm going to have to go back and listen to the recording so I can get the clip just right for the quote because I'm going to use it. You're going to get, I'm going to make you famous. You know, we, we, they, they, I love what you said. We get over their skis and before they know it, they're going down the little black diamond trail. I'm just, I've just got the vision in my head of a, of a ski jumper and, you know, they're kind of at the top and they're, they're waiting to go, waiting to go, waiting to go. The system from where I sit, they already started down. They just don't realize it yet. In other words, you're inevitably going to have forced balance sheet contraction on all these all these crazies with their massive leverage with you know attendant consequences that i don't want to describe graphically because it'll scare all the women and children in this room i, I just i just don't see any other way i don't know kfab you want to push back yeah. i agree with that yeah th this is right in my wheelhouse so um the the legacy risk models that everyone runs or most everyone runs is all you know normal distribution uh, you know, all the machine learning off of the last 20 years worth of data that everyone's been doing is all kind of using the same kind of statistical modeling. And the problem is that uh, instead of using that kind of modeling, and that, that's very good when you're in a mean reverting kind of normal environment. Um, but when you get into a, a, an environment where the system's unstable because of all this leverage that's built up, you introduce uh, the, the, the dynamics of uh, the sand pile model which is um, basically nonlinear. This is kind of what Nassim Taleb talks about with, with fooled by randomness or black swans. It's, it's when the, the distribution shifts to something like a fat tail 
And this this is seen throughout the natural world. I mean, it's, it's you can use all kinds of analogies with, with this. Um, so what leverage does in financial markets, it's it's like snow on a mountainside. And once the avalanche starts, the, the, the question is, how big is the avalanche going to be? And this is what I've been writing about since the beginning of the year. The avalanche started. I mean, the first kind of rumblings of at the top of the mountain starting the avalanche was when the arcs and all the hyper growth crap peaked in February of 2021. And ever since then, it's been rolling down the mountain and picking up speed, picking up velocity and sucking more and more parts of the sand pile into it. And, and another characteristic of this is hidden interdependencies, which we've been talking about, is where stuff just starts to break on the other side of the mountain. You didn't even know there's an avalanche going on in the bigger part of the mountain. And all of a sudden you get sucked into it. So that was the UK this week. And there's going to be more of them, whether it's the SMB or, you know, stuff that we can't even think of right now, um, you know, because it's, they just seemingly come out of nowhere. So this is all kind of classic complex systems um sand pile model behavior and to your point george it is the leverage the leverage is like the, the grains of sand or the snow on the mountain and as you pile that up then that's you know this is when i went on my rant moralizing earlier is we keep letting this happen keep incentivizing it through policy and then bailing out the leveraged assholes when they inevitably blow it up i mean it, it, this is predestined we this is a feature not a bug yeah, KFAT, I totally agree with you. And you've heard me moralize about this before on my own, where I keep saying that this blowing up is a good thing. It's a necessary part of the, of, 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 of the healing. We have to blow this stuff up and destroy this stuff so we can start over again. Otherwise, as you say, we just keep piling more and more leverage on top of the whole thing. So, But, but what's uh, going to happen, George, is you know, uh, Kenny's going to get on the phone to the New York Fed as soon as... You know, it's the same rate. Another milestone on this whole beginning of the crisis was when they took the buy button away from GME. Right. What yeah. was that to do? That that was leverage. That was system leverage because of market makers not being able to handle the gamma squeeze. And the whole system was, on. you know, that was another version of what just happened in this UK fiasco. Yep. 100%, 100%. By the way, Keyfab, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but um, I'm going to I'm going to actually make you co-host, I think. Um, I'm reserving the co-host spot for you. Monday at 4.30, John Hussman. Monday at 4.30, John Hussman. And John rarely makes public appearances. Um, I had to use a little connection to pull to get him to come to read to speak. But he will be with us at 4.30 on Monday, assuming that there isn't any last-minute crisis, which he warned me there might be. And one thing I want to say to everybody in this room, um, John... Um, he has an autistic child, and I believe he's a big benefactor of, uh, of autism, and I think he might even have a foundation. So um, we are going to, uh, I, th I think, and is, is, a, is, a, is, a, adore, is, a, is a token of our appreciation for John. I'm going to ask every, solicit everyone to give to his uh, autism uh, cause uh, on Monday. He's doing this as a real favor. He's really smart. And you know what, KFIT? KFIT, I want you to talk about Huston for a second. Viewed through the lens of what you just described, John is like, you know, he's up there. He's like one of the smartest guys in the room. He's in that Jeremy Grantham league, right? And people make fun of him. Twitter bro and dudes who are only concerned with number go up, they poke fun at him. He was early. He was wrong. Whatever you want. Okay. But to, I take, I always like to say that, you know, sometimes the market makes you look smarter than you really are. And sometimes it makes you look really dumb than you really are. Okay. 
the people who are bearish on Japan, Newman, you don't have to speak up. You can just punch your avatar, smiley thing. The people who are bearish on Japan in January, in, in December of 89, having looked like idiots, were they dumb? No. It's just the mania overran everybody. It made them look dumb, all right? And in this, in this sewer of Fintwit, you have these, these Twitter bro with their Discord rooms, you know, these 25-year-olds pontificating on why you have to own NVIDIA and ARC. They don't even know who John Hussman is, but the elder brethren will make fun of anyone who, who has things value me, means anything. And Mark, Mr. Markets made John Hussman look foolish. But my, I'm going to, I'm teeing this up for a question for you, KFAB. The longer this has gone on, and it's gone on for God knows that any of us could have ever imagined, or John Hussman could have imagined, to me, it just adds up to, it means A, it was the leverage that caused it to happen, and B, when the underlying comes, it's going to vastly exceed, it's, it's going to be a tale, it's going to vastly exceed anyone's expectation. And so I think John's Hussman's moment of redemption has arrived. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. And you want to riff on that, KFAB? Yeah, I, I have a lot of empathy for John. I, I've known, I don't know him personally, but I've been following his uh, writing for, you know, pretty much 22, 23 years. And at one point, I actually had uh, a pretty large amount in his funds, his primary fund. Um, and but I actually pulled it in September of 2008 uh, because I saw he was kind of going on tilt, um, meaning that, you know, and I've done it myself. You've done it, George. Like you have this. And, and as you mentioned earlier about Cantrell, you know, you build this process that you trust. And then because we're all human beings and our egos get involved, you know, people violate their own process. And I, that's, I saw John doing that in September of 08. So I pulled the money. And uh, I think he got on tilt in 09, 08 into 09. And I, I think he, he kind of flailed around a bit um, trying to figure things out. Um, and I have empathy for that because I've been there. I've done that, right? <laughs> so, um, but I, I, to your point, I think he's kind of got his legs back under him. And um, so I, I generally agree with you that this is probably the, the season for his kind of strategy, I think, has finally arrived. And again, this goes back to trailing performance. His trailing performance is atrocious. Like it is what it is. You can't pretend it's not. Um, but that's looking back. And the question is, what is he doing? How does he do it? And does it match what's in front of us? And I'd argue it very likely probably is. Um, and having gone through that, you know, uh, that period of humility and and. I, I can only imagine how, uh, uh, you know, um, difficult it was for him from an, an intellectual and an emotional perspective. I'm sure he's learned from that. And and um, so I, I think that will probably make him better going forward as well. And I don't feel that bad for him because I'm sure he's been healthily compensated through all this. Um, but, you know, you still have to have that kind of general empathy as a human being about, you know, when you go through that long of a period where you're really underperforming and not doing well, as you know, George, it's like a being in a living hell in this business. You know, he's the opposite of crypto, bro. He's the opposite of crypto, bro. For them, it's all about number go up. Ends justify the means. There's no fucking process. John Hussman, it's all process. And, he, you know, he, he's brilliant, but he missed a couple things. He just got run over by the leverage and the, and the biggest, you know, explosion of liquidity in the, in the history of the world. So Japan's got nothing on this market. So again, four thirty on Monday. I, I urge everyone to come, come and listen to John speak. He doesn't speak very, very often. So this is this is a huge deal. A very fortunate get. 
And by the way, KFAB, uh, offline, I'll tell you who else we got coming. This is going to make your head explode. I mean, this one is just going to be bring the whole house down. Um, all right. Uh, uh, Tommy Thorne, can you unmute yourself? I think you're we got you up there as a speaker, but I think we can't hear. Oh, there you go. Tommy, can you just can you speak? Hey, how are you, George? Um, excellent. Excellent, Tommy. I don't know. You, I don't know how long you've been in the room for. I know I've seen you for the last half hour, but I think you heard my question about um, leverage and, and the effect of the effect of declining the fact that, that, that the year just to restate the question much higher uh, short term rates. What that does to books, what works if you're, you know, again, not speaking specifically, but just generally, you you work these places, you know people at these places. What's the impact? Well, a couple of questions. A, the impact on positions overall on the street, just when you raise rates like we have, and then particularly the um, the the pods that these guys, because they're not caught offside necessarily in any one thing, they're not like you know. Uh, well, actually, they are in a very big sense. They got a huge carry trade going on. They're borrowing short and they're investing on a market neutral basis long. So, just speak to how you see exposures up and down the street, particularly focusing on the pods as a result of these this increase in interest rates, Tommy. Okay. Um, well, I have a couple things about leverage as well. But as far as the, some of the positioning, I don't think hedge funds are positioned as uh, offsides as they typically have been going into these types of fiascos. We've seen a lot of, of exposure taken off. I think I saw that some of the desks are saying that they're at, you know, some of the lowest exposure uh, they've seen in, you know, quite a while. Uh, so I think that that's uh, maybe a positive for hedge fund people and the pods. I still think there's like companies like Citadel that you don't know what they have because, you know, I, I can't confirm this, but I think it's true. They rarely show a 5% or greater uh, position weighting uh, or, uh, you know, in, uh, holding holder weighting. And one of the reasons is that once they tick over 5%, everything moves to swap. And so they can keep that stop. They don't have to uh, file that they're a holder. So there's probably a lot of those out there. Uh, probably the desks that uh, have been the lending desks and the prime brokers are picked up on the bill wang and they don't want to get wanged again. Uh, but it's possible with a big one. And, you know, the other thing is we're all, we're not talking about uh, necessarily funds. We're talking about freaking central banks, this go. And that is really pretty scary. And one, one thing that I remember back in 2000, late 2007, and when I was at my fund, we had Ned Davis in, in our office, in our conference room. And one thing that he said really stayed with me, and it was eerie because it came true. He said, when everything starts to break down in the markets, and they will, you're going to find people that you never thought would need a redemption are calling you guys up saying, can you send me money? And that was very true. We didn't have, you know, it wasn't a massive amount of redemptions because we, we had a good year in that, that period. But that really could be something that we see in the next quarter. And one thing about, I, I wrote about this and bear with me on this. Uh, I, I've looked at uh, like chaos theory where you have 
these something that you want to solve a problem or fix a problem and you fix the problem by doing more of the problem and one of the things that I've talked about is back in the 70s early 70s in Cape Cod and Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard everybody all the conservationists were worried about the seals and so what they did is they did this big conservation plan and it worked. It worked. Seals are everywhere now. They're everywhere. And guess what happened? They created even more problems with fishermen not having the same amount of fish to catch. And this is even worse. There's more sharks in the water. So you're seeing more sharks uh, patrolling the shores of Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. It's just like the central banks. They solved the problem, so to speak, after the great financial crisis and created an even bigger one. Now, I, I, I saw a chart of total market cap, including stocks, bonds, just about everything, the, the, the drawdown in trillions of dollars. And it's stunning because there's never been a bigger drawdown in history. And I, I forgot who put it out. I Somebody sent it to me. Um, I'll find it and I'll tweet it out. But you also have to remember that over the last 10 years, the amount of market cap increase and leverage and bond issuance has gone up exponentially more than when we were in the great financial crisis or before the, the, the crisis. So it's like they've created something by trying to fix it. And yeah, I saw what happened with the Bank of England and they bent to save some things and usually as i said the other day with you george usually you see these places the the ldis that are um oh somebody that sent me the chart just uh texted me uh usually when you see the most conservative strategies blow up it's because they just were thinking this is safe let's lever it up 10 times and we're good Happened with long-term capital. Happened with a lot of other, you know, banks uh, in, in the great financial crisis, and it's happening maybe now with um, maybe some central banks. I mean, I, I've thought there's going to be a central bank that tilts this over, and I think we're kind of on the cusp of it. That's it. And oh, I hope my seal thing translated for you okay george and tommy by the way is someone who uh, before moving to the new york area uh six years ago living in boston for 35 years i owned a place on the cape in chatham for 25 years uh, i had my 19 foot uh whaler uh, and i'd go out amongst the seals and i'm well aware of the seals we routinely would go out to watch the seals and yes, now, but, but you didn't, you didn't, you forgot to mention the biggest unintended consequence of what happened, Tommy. I got you on this one. It's going to be checkmate. I'm teasing you, my friend. Shark tourism. Shark tourism has become a big thing on the Cape. So. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, pass. The <laughs> I'll pass. I'll pass. I don't want to be in a whaler, 19-foot whaler with a 12-foot great white. I'll just... well, but plus, you don't want to be in a whaler period with me because I don't, I don't know what the hell I was doing. But anyway, it's either here or there. I really appreciate, really appreciate the time. That's awesome stuff. All right, guys. This has been a lengthy room. Uh, we had a technical delay in the middle. Uh, 
but hopefully uh, you all enjoyed it and uh, see you again soon. Everyone be safe. Take care. Bye-bye.